Hello and welcome to episode 251 of Random Nintendo, titled From the History Books. I am doing this all way out of order. Timestamps can be found in the, I was gonna say the job description. <laughs> My name is Angel. And I just kind of took over it. I'm um, Jason. Hi. I Yeah, you took my spot. I'm Kevin. You're taking over the entire episode? Yeah. Um, uh, I'm gonna, wait, I'm what? drive this. Yeah, I'm sorry, <laughs> but Jason. But my um, notes. My notes. Yeah, ju- um, just crumple them up and throw them away. Um, I'm digital. Gonna, I'm going to drive this straight into a ditch. Uh, right-click, I... delete. <laughs> no. Let's see. Uh, we, we, we got a... a <laughs> Quite a, a number of topics, at least five of them. Um, we're <laughs> actually, about... I would argue there's like seven. Hmm. Uh, actually, yeah, you know what? Jason, take the wheel. Um, I'm going to go chill in the backseat. Has there ever so, been an episode where there was less than, like, say, four topics? Um, no, I don't think so, because we're fortunate that Nintendo has enough going on that there isn't. There's been I, well, like, like, I, I thought about I, one I, game or one of I thought they didn't have anything. It depends on how you define topic, right? Um, cause we're talking about news topics. There's been somewhere's only one or two. And like definitely, I think even as recent as our start of the year episode, the what's new is old or old is new, whatever we called it, we talked about crash team racing and Minecraft dungeons. Like that was like two topics plus one news story, but we like talked beyond just those topics. But those about, are like, technically ancient games relative to right, their right. release date. Correct. Correct. So, so technically, yeah, they're, they're only topics because we forced them into this topic hole. Well, we didn't force it. The game trial for Crash was going in. Angel and I were playing Minecraft Dungeons together at that point. That, but what I mean is, like, would that have... I feel like those games would have been the topic when they released. Or at least, um, not Minecraft if Dungeons. If we played Crash. them or had access Crash. to them, which neither of us did yeah. at the time. Yeah. Yes, you're correct. Yeah. So there's some... This episode is actually a good example of your point. Because the, the news cycle... There's a few things coming up. That were announced, you know, Pikmin as an AR game um, coming out. Uh, Sony bought Evo, which is kind of weird. Uh, what the the 4K Switch is going to do to do its 4K was uh, reported by Bloomberg, which is interesting. DLSS, but to your point, yeah, there it is a little quiet. But coincidentally, there's been a lot of stuff that's kind of backwards looking, which is where the from the history books title comes from. Cause, you know, it's usually yeah, the four. quietness was kind of nice, was kind enough to let me revisit Metro Samus Returns, which. It's been long overdue. Yeah, so opinion. there's so there's that, and then like I've been checking out Mr. Driller Drillland, which is a 2002 GameCube title that was only released in Japan, but then got an HD remaster on Switches now out in the rest of the world. So it's like kind of old, but kind of new, but sorta. And then on top of that, like I've also been watching that, uh, or just finished watching the Playing with Power documentary on Crackle, which is this five part series all about Nintendo that I wanted to touch on. Um, so yeah, there is to your point kevin like old stuff that's now new for the sake of the episode um and there's timestamps, like angel said for all of it over new at to new to us new to discuss <laughs> in, yeah in the job description on the bottom in the, yes in the job description um and and beyond the the job description be sure to stick around to the end of the show because we're gonna be announcing the winner of our 25 dollar 250 episode eShop credit giveaway that we announced last show i really um, hope that i won this time I'm, i did you enter yeah of course i enter all of them so um, it, it does say in the in the fine print that if you're a, a Ram Nintendo staffer, um, well, I mean, you're not going to know which one's him. So yeah, if you're if you're if you're committing fraud, <laughs> then good luck to you. <laughs> but, but otherwise, um, but yeah, so I guess we can talk about what we've been playing since that. You know, Angel, you were saying Metroid, and I was saying Mr. Driller. But but someone I didn't mention that has a topic, Kevin. You, I don't think you have a game per se, right? But you have been messing around with an accessory, like a Hori controller or something, right? Oh, wasn't ready to go this early. Uh, yeah. So I, uh, 
I finally went ahead and bought the Hori Split Pad Pro, which is basically two giant Joy-Con. Um, so I was discussing a while ago how, well, I love Hades, but playing in my bed with the Joy-Con is very, very uncomfortable. Um, the ergonomics of the Joy-Con have never really been there. I don't know if either of you two agree. I have tiny hands, uh, I agree. So I'm fine. Me and the former president, like, same hands. I, I think for me, it's just more of like, I had a pro controller since the beginning, so it just always felt like a downgrade. Like, and yeah, it, it just, it makes them feel way more uncomfortable when you already have something that is, you know, already makes sense. Yeah, exactly. And right. so, so I was scouring around the internet. I hope that's the right word. And, uh, one of the top reviewed Joy-Con replacements was this uh, Hori Pad Split Pro. I think I'm getting the uh, the order of that wrong. I, I know it's split <laughs> at some point. Um, but the anyways, Pad Pro Split Hori. Yeah, something something yeah. like that. Uh, but <laughs> oh, split splat. Pr- the the oh, split flat Hori Pad Pro. The, the split splat Pro. Yeah. Um, no, so it cost me, I believe it was on sale, so I got it for $10 off, so mounted to about $40 plus, you know, shipping and handling. I'm liking it so far, it's it's definitely not as comfortable as the Switch Pro Controller, but it's, it definitely is way more comfortable than the Joy-Cons. The Joysticks have much farther travel instead of the tiny little nubs on the Joy-Con. The buttons are bigger, it has an actual D-pad and not just, you know, the... Uh, the four directional buttons as opposed mm-hmm. to the Joy-Con. It has an extra an extra button on the back where I guess your like uh, your index fingers would rest or maybe even your middle finger or your ring finger would rest. Uh sort of like Weird. the um what's it called? What were those controllers that brought them in that brought this into style that You talking about like a macro button? No, it's it's not a macro button. Um the rock candy? The rock candy? No. What? Where did that come from? <laughs> the ones that were like clear. The ones you said brought a sense of style, right? It's like they were kind of see-through plastic and no, no, very no, no, vibrant. No, 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 no. He meant brought into Things style LED finger rest thing. The the finger rest. Uh-huh. There, there's a button there. Uh, it, it's like a scuff controller. It's like the Xbox Elite controller where you know you have like a paddle in the back. Oh, okay, yeah. I think oh, Elite but, was what brought it into fashion. The paddle. The Wii. Right? The Elite, the Xbox Elite. Oh, controller. okay, yeah, 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 yeah. I think. Well, it might, it might have been the Elite, but uh, but this is an actual button. It's not a paddle, and so you can assign any button that you want to uh, to those buttons. So, for instance, for for Hades, you press Y to attack, B to dash, and then you have to sort of move your thumb over to A to cast uh your projectile. So I just set it so that my thumb never has to move, and the uh the back button on the right the right Joy-Con would be my cast. Um and it works pretty well. There is a turbo function, but ever since ever since the dawn of man, I've never understood what a turbo button ever does on these sort of third party controllers. You and me um, both. Yeah. <laughs> and I am too lazy to figure out now at almost thirty years of age. So <laughs> yeah. Uh as far as I can tell, I well I'm not sure what it's doing to the battery because I did a full Hades run with uh, the brightness halfway. And after that, uh, a full Hades run will usually run anywhere from 20 to 30 minutes. And it killed about 30% of the battery. 
I don't know if that's just because my Switch battery is so low for, you know, this is a launch edition Switch. If it was just from that, or if these take way more power than the Joy-Con. Um, Do they? But yeah, so far, so far I'm having, uh, I'm having a good time with it. I'm very curious to play Monster life. Hunter with these. Uh, so I could actually play that, you know, in bed. This is gonna make gaming in bed way, way more comfortable than than those Joy-Con will, like, would. You know? Do they have HD Rumble? Because I've noticed that most third-party controllers. Which, by the way, when did it switch? Like, it was like Mad Cats and all these other companies, and then one day, Mad Cats disappeared, and now it's like Hori and Power A. And but either way, um, I've noticed with the oh, Power man. A's, they Mad don't Cats, have Pelican. Remember Mad Cats? Pelican, yeah. There's another one Dude. too. Um, yeah, Nico. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, Nico. Well, yeah, that's all. Like Nico's still around, probably. Yeah, they are, and they do. I think they do more accessories and controllers now. But my point was, Power A doesn't have HD Rumble included. Does Hori, or is that something that I guess Nintendo might have a patent on? Or like, did you notice a lack of it? I can't tell. But to be fair, I never noticed HD Rumble in any game, regardless. So <laughs> fair. <laughs> it is underutilized. Yeah. Not even one to switch. That's I mean, that's the, that's, that yeah, that's the only one where you notice, oh, this is HD Rumble no, you, and not you just do, regular you Rumble. You sort of notice it, to be fair, with Mario Odyssey. They do different types of Rumbles for different things in there. My favorite being... I mean, you being, say that, my favorite but, I, being, but off the top of my head... Like I, my favorite... Oh, I, I got one. The little upspring character. You know when like you, you cap or you turn... You use Mario's cap to capture <laughs> someone? When, when you cap someone. <laughs> when, when, when you cap that enemy. When you cap a fool. No, but when you... um do the capture thing and you become the little uproot guy who you can vertically like extend your legs super high it does a the rumble it does a little noise first of all because like with the controller but it also um you feel like as you pull down to launch the rumble kind of move down the controller and then move back up as you launch which i always thought was kind of cool it's really subtle but it's there it like kind of does like a down up thing on the controller well i wasn't able to tell the difference back then i doubt that if you said <laughs> hd rumble i'd be able to tell the difference now Fair. um yeah, so far, uh, a sound investment, and it is uh, dock-friendly. Uh, I was very worried about that when I got them, uh, but fear not. How much was you it? You can absolutely dock these without any problem. And now I can throw away my Joy-Con. That's not true. I'm not going to throw, throw away. away. Ooh. I'm definitely going to put them in a shoebox somewhere. How, how much did it cost, the Hori? I imagine uh, it's cheaper. It was, it, was, it was on sale, so it was about $40. Oh, that's not bad at all. Given a Joy-Con, yeah. is like 70 <laughs> It's not bad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, so um, my impressions of the Hori Split Splat Spro. <laughs> Trademark and copyright by Hori right there. Yep. Official name. Um, I guess we can move on to the actual games then, which, uh, you know, we talked about Metroid Sanitary Turner, we talked about Mr. Driller. Um, I guess, you know, it is actually the 10th anniversary of the 3DS this weekend, fittingly. So, which, which is wild to think about that's been 10 years but i guess that means it kind of makes sense to start with a 3ds game so wait the 3ds came out the year we graduated it did it came out that march yeah and to uh as of this recording so saturday it's the 10th anniversary and when this goes up we're a day past it which again kind of insane that's been 10 years like it had a good run i feel like the system um i don't know it definitely like i don't know about you guys had an amazing run what are you talking about like what was your what would you say your favorite game is kevin on there, or can you even name one? Jesus, oh, favorite. Well, because he said had, he was so like it had a good run, so I'm like, okay, well, what a drop a bombshell question, like out of nowhere. Like well, because he was just like it had a good run, so I'm like, so okay, there's gotta games. be something that made him say that. Like, what's the game that made well, him? I, well, I mean, not because of the games, just because of like how it sold. Oh, sure, yeah, so, like, yeah, it, 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 yeah. The only one, I mean, it had a slow start. I don't know if you remember early on, like they priced it like two fifty, 
and no one bought it. Like, they had no launch games. It's like Nintendogs sequel, which no one cared about. Pilot Wings, and like, then Steel Diver. Um, hey man, it has Street Fighter Four. And then Sony was like, Super when we 3D. sell our system for our portable for two fifty, it's gonna fly off the shelves. And then <laughs> the Vita, it's just rumored that the Vita store was going to be discontinued. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, but what was funny about that is so then when they did that with Vita, Nintendo went, oh, crap, and, like, dropped the price by, like, $70. And for all the early adopters, like, oh, we're so sorry, and they gave us all those free Game Boy Advance emulations and ROMs, um, and, like, the Ambassador games, quote-unquote. Most of uh, which never even made it. There was, I think, maybe one or two, unless none of them ever did, well, but I... They're all there. I def- No, 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 no. Like, I respect the fact that there were never... Most of them were never like released to the general. Oh, public. that's they, what you they, mean. They yeah, that kind of ticked me off a little bit, but like because I figured out like oh like there's no way they're not going to release like I mean they're literally there like why wouldn't they want to make more money off of these Game Boy Advance games like Seriously. like Minish Cab, Metroid Fusion, Wario Land like, Four, like like all these like amazing Game Boy Advance games, the NES games, eh, whatever. Yeah, that's why I did. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like the fact they never made them available to the public like always just kind of made me go like damn like. That's cool, Nintendo. And I, I like, honestly, it sucked for them, but that, that was pretty cool. It made it feel way more special. I honestly thought they were going to, too, because they gave us, remember they gave us an app that was like a certificate of like, you're an early adopter. I forgot what they called it, like ambassador yeah. certificates. So I'm like, the oh, well, that's yeah. the out. Hey, we gave you these games early, plus you have this exclusive display thing in your system. But you're right, they never did it. Um, I don't know. I didn't mind yeah. being an early adopter, though. Like, I thought, like, the first time I played the 3DS, like, I had the same sort of wow moment. I mean, we had stuff to do. I mean, we had the AR games. Yeah, exactly. I definitely and played Street for Street Fighter 4, 3D edition to death. Mm-hmm. So. But, but as I say, like, and, and even, like, that early, like, the AR, like, Face Raiders was kind of cool. And the whole, like, early, seeing that Glasses 3 3D for the first time did have, I mean, gameplay implication-wise, it wasn't nearly the same scale. But in terms of, like, the wow moment, it matched for me the first time picking up a Wii Remote. Like, just like, whoa, this is some crazy tech. And it was, I do remember, like, we showed everyone in college, like, look at Face Raiders. Like, you got to try Face Raiders. Like, it was, it was really cool at the time. Um, the 3D store fell yeah. to the wayside pretty quick. I can't think of very many games that, like, genuinely, gameplay-wise, benefited from a 3D depth effect. Like, visually, sure. The diorama effect was cool. Um, some games, like, leveraged that. Like I, like, I thought A Link Between Worlds was cool and how it's basically a normal Zelda, 2D Zelda, but... They played with verticality. They played with 3D versus flatness using, like, the paper form of Link and stuff. So, like, it leveraged that it had the technology, but it could have worked without it, too. Like, nothing really, like, required the 3D, but it was still a really solid system. Yeah, I never turned on the 3D in my 3DS. Really? At all? Ever. Wow. But that, oh, but I'm weird oh. in that, like, I also don't play portable games with the sound on, so. Oh. Hmm. That's a little strange. Yeah, I had that cranked up all the way all the time. Yeah, I, I made sure to, like, maximize 3D when I could. Um, but then after a while, I, I take that back. I noticed over time I start I started dropping it down because I was like, this isn't worth, like, sitting at different angles and whatnot. But, yeah, it was a cool system. Mm-hmm. It was. Um, happy anniversary, 3DS. But, yeah, one of the, like, swan songs of the system was what you've been playing, Angel. Sorry, I went on a tangent there, which is uh, Metro. Oh, so, so you didn't say so you didn't have a game then? What, me? Kevin? You? Either. Because I think you asked them. Oh, can... true. I mean, my favorite game on 3DS is Fire Emblem Awakening. That's when I got really into the Fire Emblem games. It is the one that saved the franchise, too. Or Shin Megami Tensei 4. Either one of those. I think... Is that the one that's getting a remake on the Switch? No, that's that's Shin Megami Tensei 3. Nocturne. Which comes out May 24th, they just announced the other day. So, pretty soon. They announced it for PC, and for once, I might just 
stay happy with getting the Switch version. Wow, look at you. That that seems more of a more of a you know stay in bed kind of game. Right, right. Um, Angel, what would you say your favorite 3DS game is? And then I guess I'll say mine. Oh man, there's way too many to pick out from individually because you know there was like Monster Hunter Four that we played a ton. I mean, the Ace Attorney games on there were also amazing. I mean, we even have the crazy collab that was like Ace Attorney and um, Professor Layton. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think I would have to definitely just pick Rhythm Heaven Fever. I mean, Mega Mix, just because that like uh, Fever, I felt always had to be on the 3DS. And, you know, pretty much getting all of Fever, pretty much all of this Rhythm Heaven vanilla, because that's what they called it here in the U.S., just Rhythm Heaven. But it was the DS one and the Game Advance one, all in one, and new games. And I don't know, I, I think that game is, like, pretty close to, like, the perfect game in general, for me. Mm-hmm. I just could never get tired of it. It's I'm, I'm glad that's, you know... Because any game, no matter what it is, outside of Rhythm Heaven, like Smash Brothers or Mario Kart, like even though I love all these games, there are times when I'm just not in the mood to play them. And I feel I can never say that about Rhythm Heaven. Like I can always play that and always just have a good time and just like unwind with mm-hmm. it. And yeah, it's it's like therapeutic, fun, and just love everything about it. That's totally me with WarioWare yeah. generally, which makes sense since it's the same team. Uh, WarioWare is just the non-musical Rhythm Heaven ultimately. But uh, I did notice with WarioWare on the 3DS with Gold, it well, one, it was a collection of old games, but more to the point... Oh, you actually got that I did. One. More to the point, though, I got, you know, after the Switch came out. So I found myself not actually playing it as much as other WarioWare because my attention was sort of split at that point. But, um, so, like, in, in a way, like because you picked Wario uh, Rhythm Heaven, I almost want to say WarioWare because everything you said about like it... Like my horror pad. Like your horror pad, <laughs> like your Split Splat Pro, Yeah. Um, but yeah, like I almost want to say WarioWare just on that principle, but I think for me, I already said it, but I think A Link Between Worlds was really like the sweet spot. Of, and uh, maybe I'm biased because it's one of the few games I actually fully beat, but um, just the, the the way it like took sort of traditional gameplay, but then sort of layered on the 3D stuff where it felt like it was actually, again, it didn't change the gameplay, but it just like leveraged what the system could do. And it's still the diorama effect because you're looking down at it, but it had the verticality where like the stack of things would come back up at you kind of like triforce heroes did as well uh which was another pretty good game but i don't know triforce heroes didn't wasn't as good um yeah i think a link between worlds might be my favorite on 3s but there's a lot and i i will always applaud the ambition of a kid Icarus uprising and that silly little accessory to play it with because you don't have enough hands to properly play it as a human um sakura seriously that needs to just come to switch already like you got the Split Splat Pro, you have two Joy-Cons, you know, there's a way you can do it as it's intended. Just HD, you know, just make it HD, call it a day. But it was specifically designed for that interesting control scheme. It's not going to work with dual joysticks. Yeah. I They say that uh, about a lot Skyward of things. Sword, Bex Differ. Yeah, exactly. They say that about a lot of games, and then look what happens. So <laughs> They get worse. But to be fair, I would argue yeah, it's still uh, better to play it with yeah. a Wiimote and Nunchuck. I will say there is something to be said. <laughs> it works, but that's all we'll say about it. Yeah, there, there, I will say there is something to be said that, like, you know, this idea that Nintendo's always marrying hardware and software and they make these unique experiences only to then a generation or two later go, JK, here it is as a more normal experience, is, you know, kind of a funny thing. So, yes, Kid Icarus was built for it until it isn't. So. But anyway, we digress. Uh, Angel, 
Samus Returns. You're you're back on we your 3DS. We would like to digress. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love those ads. I miss those ads. That was a good campaign. When did Samus Return come back? Um, I want to say 2016, maybe. Damn. I think like like August of 2016. I'm checking. It was before the Switch, but not by a whole lot. Uh, sip- yeah, oh wow, no, I was way no. off. It was after the Switch, wasn't it? After the it was after the Switch, yeah, because we were we were playing Odyssey there at the Best Buy when we demoed right, it. It was right. Odyssey and Metroid. yeah, September fifteenth, two thousand. Lying, I know. Liar, man. September fifteenth, twenty seventeen. Oh okay, yeah. So it's been was Smash Bros already out by then on on Wii U? I mean on Switch? On Switch. Why did I say Wii U? Uh, no, Smash Bros was not out by then. Because that was the launch year yeah, of the Switch, I'm... so you know that that holiday was uh, Odyssey's holiday. Yeah, because I'm trying to figure out why I didn't play this game when it came out. Because I love the Metroid series, and I've played every single game in it. But this one just eluded me for some reason. Like I wanted to get it. Oh, actually, part of it was maybe just me being a little bummed out that we didn't get a nice collector's edition like Europe did. It sounds really dumb, we but... We got a collector's like, edition. Oh, I have it. It has a CD barely, and like, stuff. It was just like a CD and a patch or something And a shiny like box. But, but, the, but the European one just came like in a tin, and it had like a bunch of other things on there. I don't even remember what they were, but they were just... It was just like a... It felt like an actual like collector's edition. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what it was. I think I was maybe busy, busy with some other game, but ultimately I ended up skipping it until now. And... I don't know. i definitely glad I eventually got around to it because, man, this game is really fun. It's like a... I mean, it's definitely, you know, it's your classic Metroid. Um, I would probably say I prefer the Metroid Prime style. Not by much. I mean, I love them both a ton, but, I mean, Metroid Prime is how I was introduced into... Uh, yeah, it's how I was introduced to the franchise. So, that one just has... I don't know, it just edges it out a bit because of that. But... Yeah, ultimately, like, they're both fundamentally the same. There's a lot of exploration, there's a lot of backtracking, a ton of power-ups. But this one feels more like a mix between Fusion and, like, I guess Super Metroid. And I said that because Fusion was incredibly objective-based, where you pretty much always knew exactly where to go. You pretty much had point A to point B, and then point C, and then point D. But in between all of those, you could kind of get there however you want. But, you know, it, it definitely felt kind of linear. And, you know, you also have, you always had that atom computer kind of guiding you through and filling in the map whenever you get to the navigation rooms. And this one doesn't really... I mean, it has it gives you an objective, like, kill all the Metroids. Like, this is literally when you're exterminating them all from the planet. Which, you know, leads into the events of Super Metroid when you have the last Metroid in captivity, blah, blah, blah. And while you do have that objective, you could tackle the Metroid in any order you want. And it's if anything, it's more like in the order you happen to find them because the maps tend to get bigger and bigger and you don't really get told where to go. You're just kind of wandering around and you get a little, I guess, a sonar on the bottom that as you get closer to a Metroid, it starts blinking faster, faster, faster and faster. I guess you could kind of compare it to finding the gems in Sonic Adventure 2 with Knuckles. And eventually, once you get close enough, you'll trigger the encounter. And yeah, you'll do battle with the Metroid. And you kill them. You grab their DNA. Collect the 
required number of Metroid DNA and unlock the next area and rinse and repeat. But it still feels pretty freeform. And even though there's like a lot of backtracking that I know I already have to do, it's kind of teased throughout and it doesn't feel like it's limiting the map. Like it still feels there's plenty of map to explore, but they're still showing you like, oh, look at this little tiny block or this like room over here like you can't get to it yet. You have to come back later with something. And, you know, once you get those powers, um, it's very incremental, but like every power does like really make a big difference, like in a cool way. Like I feel like when you first start the game, you know, like Samus has a, I would say a pretty decently sized jump, but, um, by the time you unlock the high jump, like you end up feeling like, whoa, like this feels really normal now, but it almost feels like Samus is jumping like a ridiculous amount. And then eventually you unlock the space jump, which, you know, lets you jump infinitely. Like, just keep tapping B. Which is kind of nice for, you know, a side-scroller game, because, you know, it you would think, like, oh, that might make traversal really easy, but everything is pretty corridory. So, you know, enemies will still be getting in your way very constantly. And that's another thing that I kind of missed about these Metroid games, is that they're really tough. Like, you take damage, like, I don't know, you lose a lot of health really quickly. And I would say like getting hit by an actual attack, not just running into an enemy, will take away probably like an entire like life meter, which you know it's a, a hundred every single time. Or yeah, it will take out an entire energy tank. There you go. And you collect energy tanks as you explore the world, you find the little hidden tanks all over spread all over just with the missile expansions, but yeah, like it's like two or three hits and you're dead. And that's until you've unlocked, you know, even more energy tanks. Like, even right now, like, I feel like I'm three quarters of the way done. Like, I feel like there's only a little bit more and then I'll be done with the game. But, yeah, even then, I still die really quickly, especially when you fight the bosses. Like, even just touching the boss without actually getting hit by them deals a ton of damage. So, yeah, it's it's definitely tough. But it forces you to kind of strategize and take your time with it. You can't, sometimes, depending on the situation, you do just try to, like, bum rush through everything. And, you know, just running into things and just trying to get through just because, you know, you're kind of, like, already low on health, but you don't really... But there's, like, so many enemies, you kind of have to go fast. But, I don't know. Patience definitely pays off a lot. Um, This game, though, I did play the original... Metroid, I guess at the time was called the Return of Famine. The way they flip the name is always funny to me. <laughs> like, like we're gonna remake it, but let's just reverse the words. But anyway, sorry, you're saying. Oh, <laughs> yeah. The they've changed this game a ton. Like, pretty much, it you know, it's almost akin to, I would say, uh, maybe not quite Resident Evil Two, because then you know that just one's to pretty much complete. No, it's bigger than that. It's bigger than yeah, that. It's a little bigger. It's like if they re-rendered um, all of damn, Justice League. Like what? if Justice League was a CG movie or a hand-drawn movie and then they rendered it as a CG movie. Right? I mean, because I don't want to say it's quite Pokemon, the first movie, the remake. Because that one literally yeah, did actually. that, what you just described. But essentially, yeah, it's still the same game. You're still hunting Metroids. But everything is given like a lot more like life and pop which is just really cool like for instance like sometimes you're 
you know, like harassed by things in the background. Like you get way more abilities. Like in this game, they introduced something called ion abilities. And so far I've unlocked three of the four. And these might seem kind of broken in the beginning, but I guess the way they managed, because they all use the same resource, it doesn't end up feeling balanced. Like in the beginning, you unlock the sonar one, which essentially like if you press up on, you press a different direction on the D-pad to change which ability you want to use. And yeah, like the sonar one will create like a a giant wave that will essentially reveal a pretty decently sized section of the map. And yeah, in the beginning you might be spamming spamming it a ton just to reveal like as much of the map as possible. But as you start to unlock other abilities that you end up finding yourself using a ton, like you end up getting a super shield that can destroy, you know, little barriers and um and protect you from like specific plants and enemies. Like that drains your resources pretty fast. And eventually you also discover a I guess we'll call it the frenzy mode where Pretty much like for a couple seconds, you're going to be firing bullets like a machine gun. And that one is extremely useful against the bosses, but, you know, it drains your energy super fast. So eventually you might be like, oh, damn it, I'm not sure where to go. And you don't have the sonar to save you. So you do just kind of have to pay attention to the map of where you've been and see like, all right, this does not have that little line that indicates I hit a wall. So I probably need to go there. So there's definitely a lot of that. But... I don't know. Something else that's great is just seeing, like, the Metroid evolutionary line just being, like, rendered out this way. Because, you know, like, I feel like we're all used to seeing Metroids in their... I don't even know what to call them. uh, Their little brain teeth <laughs> mode. Pretty much when people say Metroid, like, they yeah. they have that yeah, image. Because that's, like, all they uh, ever see. Looks like, uh, what is it inside DNA that looks kind of like a Metroid? You know what I'm talking Or in a cell. It's just like a little space. Yeah, with, with 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 like little things. Yeah. So yeah, those things. Um. Yeah, like the second form that you fight pretty early on. In fact, I don't even think you ever fight a Metroid in that jellyfish form. Like I think you immediately face off with them. Like yeah, face off against them in their next stage, which is kind of like an upside down Metroid. Like the the see throughish part is on the bottom, and. Yeah, like, they'll, like, rush at you, and you have something in this game, like, that it's pretty much a parry, which is really cool. And this parry will let you one-shot kill a lot of enemies. Like, just about every enemy in this game will, like, charge at you when you get close enough to them. They'll give off, like, a little spark, and then they'll approach you in some way. And if you press the parry button, which is the topmost button, I believe that's why, um... Samus will swing her arm cannon up and, like, smack them. And if you fire at them immediately after, you'll kill them in one hit. And it's extremely, like, important to, like, get that down. Just because if you don't, a lot of these enemies do take quite a while to kill. And, you know, missing opportunity to one-shot them is pretty bad. Not to mention that sometimes you have multiple enemies at once. And you might want to bait one out to attack you. But then the other one might attack you first. And that might mess it up. So you definitely have to... You know, pick your battles wisely. But, you know, and after that Metroid, like, you know, it evolves into another form that looks kind of like a creepy giant spider monster. And they're all really tough. They have a lot of area of effect moves. They'll shock the entire floor. They'll rush at you. They'll fly and dive bomb you and drop electrical bombs. Like, it's 
like it almost makes me want to revisit the old one just to be like how did this look again you can't be disappointed i really hard to imagine like yeah like it's really hard to imagine this like giving you that same kind of feeling on a game boy like literally not even like a game boy i mean the original game from like 1991 so it's early game boy 2 before they really harnessed the tech fully i mean i literally just finished a sequence where like there's like this giant really giant robot in the background that first i kind of like it triggers the cutscene. Samus walks up and they kind of look at each other, but then it kind of like walks away into the background. Just like, you know, and as it walks away, you hear this, the rumbling that it's causing in the caverns. But then later on, you run into it again and then it starts chasing you and it has like a giant drill arm and it's pretty much drilling through the entire stage behind you as you try to run away from it. And you know, when, if you touch it, you die instantly because it's a giant drill. And yeah, like obviously like, I don't remember that in the Game Boy game, obviously. So, you know, they obviously added some stuff in there to spice it up, along and, with those and Aeon abilities. Is the parry that you're mentioning? But, isn't that, like, a lingering thing from Metroid Other M? I seem to remember a similar move. Yeah, because when you parry the bosses, as soon as they, like, you... Yeah, as soon as you trigger it and you actually land it, um, at least against, like, the Metroids, um, you'll enter kind of like a... I guess a quick damage state, like, the spider the bigger spider monster metroids when you parry them which you don't get mm-hmm. too many chances to do and yeah she'll like jump on them and then like open their mouth and you can start like firing missiles into the mouth for like a couple seconds and yeah other right, m definitely right. did have something like that it's very stylish the parry but, in both games it. yeah but this game it's crazy how it feels like really fresh but very nostalgic and yeah this kind of gameplay hasn't felt doesn't feel old some things are starting to feel a little i don't want to say dated but like the way the backtracking and like what you can and can't access i feel just looks more natural in Mm. the metroid primes just because you know like you're inside like a giant cave and like if you throw a missile at a bomb you'll see like a little block that straight up has like the image of a missile in it it's like, oh, I need to destroy this with a missile. Or you'll see a block that has, like, the image of, like, a green missile. It's like, oh, that's a super missile. Or, right, like, like, you know, less organic like than that. what Prime did. It doesn't take away from it. But, yeah, it, it feels more like... I don't want... I mean, it definitely can be very immersive. Oh, man, especially with the 3D. I love the 3D. Just because, you know, you have really nice backgrounds. It's, like, just creatures and alien life just like kind of moving around and doing their thing hear, hear that kevin really 3d's cool, but... worth turning on see <laughs> uh, so is the sound well but... fair, fair. <laughs> that's like that <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah yeah and the music obviously like i've always loved the mitchard music the only well i guess before i get into that but yeah like the i feel like the mitchard primes have a do a much better job just keeping me really immersed in the world without you know, like, they can get me to a point where, you know, you kind of forget you're playing a game. I know, I, at least that's, like, the way I feel, like, sometimes when I'm, like, getting really into a game, it's just, like, you know, you're in the adventure. It's not, like, this is a video game. Usually you get that realization whenever, like, a like UI or something pops up and you're, like, kind of thrown back, like, oh, that's right. But this one, I guess for some reason, whenever I see, like, the icons telling you, like, what weapon you need to destroy something, they kind of like take away a little of that bit of that immersion but you know it's obviously not a big deal because this game is still a ton of fun i mean it does support amiibo it does support like writing on the map like you can make little notes for yourself i haven't messed with the amiibo yet because because i want to 
see what the game has to offer without it first because at the end of the day i know like one of them just gives you like armor or it pretty much just refills your ion meter which you know like they've already placed places to refill your meter in strategic locations so that it's not like broken but yeah it's just Really, really fun. Amiibo are uh, back, by the way. Just really wish they I would do more of them. I don't know if you guys tracked it the other day, but Amiibo are, like, selling out again. Um, Target had those Hello Kitty Sanrio Animal Crossing Amiibo cards. They sold out in under a minute. Yeah. Did and they? it's, like, chaos because Target's like, oh, you wow. can only do curbside pickup for it because uh, we want to be safe with COVID. But then many Target stores put it on shelves instead. So they said online they're sold out, but you could walk in and just grab it off the shelf. Even though they said specifically you can't. But yeah, like Amiibo mm-hmm. are having a moment. So just that reminded me. But yeah, great game overall. Um, music is great as I was mentioning. Only like little minor gripe that I have with Mitchin music in general now. And it's obviously not as fault just because of the order that I played these things. But like the first time I, you know, I mentioned already that Mitchin Prime was the first Metroid game I played. Then I just worked my way backwards and forwards. But that was the first time I heard Magmore Carvins, Caverns, Magmore Caverns, the theme for that. And I love that theme. It's like nice, imposing, like dramatic lava music that is just like trying to be like catchy and nostalgic and just memorable. But then, you know, I played Super Metroid and it's like, oh, I guess it came from this game. Like, oh, that's cool. Just hearing like the, the Super Nintendo version of it. And then, you know, they started using it in Smash Brothers, and then this one has it too. And I'm pretty sure it's also in, um, they put it back in Super Metroid. I mean, in, not Super Metroid, in um, Zero Mission. But point is, like, you know, it's just making it around a lot. It feels like every time there is a lava level, it's always going to have Magmore Carvins, Caverns. Uh, I would say Carverns. And I just kind of hope they come up <laughs> with a different lava theme. Like, that track is great, and I love it, but... I don't want to hear it is in it every like single Metroid game. Is it like the underground music of Mario? I mean, Whenever you're underground in a Mario game, you're going to hear da 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 Like, just guaranteed? Yeah, it's literally that, equi- yeah, it's that equivalent. That's a really good um, analogy. Yeah. Well, not an analogy, but yeah. it's a, yeah, it's Which means it's that. forever going to be the case. But yeah. Fair warning. But yeah, Samus Returns. It's great. It's on the 3DS. I just downloaded it. Um, no regrets. Happy with it. We- would you want Give to see more. them do like apply the same thing to All right, chill out there, Brittany? <laughs> I would say, would you would you want them to apply the same formula to Super Metroid at this point? Do you think, like, if they did in HD on Switch or something? I think so. I would like I would like them to see them do that because, like, Super Metroid, like, I like it, but I don't love it. It's definitely not my favorite Metroid. I think I honestly prefer Metroid Fusion. Wow, that's sacrilegious to a ton of old school Metroid fans to hear. Yeah, Super Metroid is usually considered like the gold standard. Yeah, and Metroid Fusion is the weird one. (laughs) Yeah. I I haven't played Super Metroid in a while, but I remember playing Like, Super Metroid has like amazing music, but I don't know. I just couldn't get into it. It took me a couple... A couple times of like different it took me different times and different consoles that i started playing in to finally beat it but for some reason it just didn't i don't know i don't know what it is about it but like ignoring the return of samus um the game Boy one just i mean i guess if i had to rank them at least the 2d ones i would probably put damn i really love metroid fusion probably like metroid fusion first 
then zero mission maybe i mean by the time i'm done with this one like this one might be my new favorite maybe right after zero mission but if i were to include you know any of the 3d metroids they would easily take the top three spots probably in the order of like metroid prime 2 metroid prime 3 metroid prime 1 but oh no i should know probably metroid prime 2 metroid prime 1 where does the other m fit in here uh, all right. It doesn't. Uh, well, there you go. <laughs> that put that on the back of the box. It's ranked not. <laughs> yeah, I haven't fully beaten it either. I just like no one believes ah, you. Damn it, because I like how it looks, and I like, <laughs> and I like kind of how it plays. Like certain parts of it, I think are really great. But I mean, I also just really like the story of Metroid, and I really like Samus as a character. Like she's definitely one of my favorite like Nintendo characters, and yeah, that game did not do her any favors. It definitely took away what made her like a badass, and mm. kind of turned it around, unfortunately. But yeah, so that song, Metroid Samus Returns, on 3DS, available now until they decide to close the eShop forever on 3DS. Which hopefully won't be anytime soon. But that see, or that's if they just arbitrarily choose like... a date to stop selling that game. Like, you mean like March 31st, yeah, 2021? Yeah. Hypothetically. Yeah. The Mario Wing? The, yeah, the, the, the RIP Mario Mario, brother of Luigi Mario. Next time we talk, you guys, yeah. next episode, Mario's dead. There is no more Mario by the next episode. So, like, really pay your respects to Mario while you can. Kind of a weird way to end an anniversary year of Mario. Yeah. But, well, it's kind of like, you know, let's celebrate how he lived because now he's going to die. <laughs> But I yeah I wonder if they're gonna announce today on April first like surprise three D uh, all stars are now available as individual games at twenty bucks a pop or something. Although I am kind of happy that I'm sticking to my gun so far and I'm refusing to get the all star collection or any of those things just because of the scarcity. Right. Because you know it is tempting. It's like oh they're not going to be available anymore. Maybe I should just get it just to have them. But but I don't need it. Like I don't. And it's not need just it. Mario. Like I have Fire Emblem. Uh, the NES one is oh, going to shut down that. too. No, but I mean but, like they're uh, doing it with multiple games. Oh, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I feel like if I were to ever like undoubtedly just buy the Mario collection without thinking about it, it would probably be in the next console cycle. Mm. Because right now, it still feels too fresh. You know, like I mentioned before, like I, the GameCube is like right there. Like everything is still really accessible and I know they all still work. So it doesn't. I feel like I would get more out of playing it on the GameCube than on the Switch. I will say the Sunshine Control. A generation or two from are better on GameCube, yeah. But a generation or two from now, like then, I would be like, yeah, I definitely want easier access to Galaxy and Sunshine and even Mario sixty four probably. But it, it's funny yeah. that you're saying that because it's too soon. It's funny that you're saying because because you know we because that, that's gonna happen. We oh, know like course. they're gonna release these games. Of eventually. course. How many times okay. did they re-release like Mario three or World? Yeah. yeah, it's 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 the Disney vault. I mean, that's all it is. But it is funny that you're yeah. saying that you know, like, oh, the games aren't that old yet because the the game I've been playing from like the annals of history is also the same age as Mario Sunshine, but because it was only out in Japan on GameCube, like it's this whole new thing now, two day two decades later, um, which is Mr. Driller Drill Land. It literally came out the same year as Sunshine, um, but never left Japan, and. Uh, for for me, this is actually I don't know. Have you guys ever played Mr. Driller? Nope. Um, I didn't really dig it, so huh. I, I see what you did there. Yeah, but yeah, this is my first uh, Mr. Driller game as well. I uh, I was always kind of intri- love the concept. Though. Yeah, I was intrigued by the by the premise because it's essentially a puzzle game inverted, right? Like instead of 
trying to place blocks in certain sequences as they fall. You're this little guy, Mr. Driller, who's trying to break up pre-placed blocks. But the thing is, like a normal puzzle game, the more blocks the same color that you kind of drill down on, the ones that are touching, the more you clear as you drill. So it's like a normal puzzle game in that you're seeking out combos, but since you're this little guy drilling, you also have to accommodate for A, not getting crushed by blocks above you as they fall, and B, having enough air to keep going. It's not just you know about navigating to the best block patches with the most color concentrate color you also have to strategically move around to know where to get air where to avoid getting squished you know kind of figuring out how the blocks go fall all like really rapid fire um it's a, it's a very unique premise it's pretty fun and, and i mean really that air gauge thing is just the game's version of a timer just disguised as a gameplay mechanic but like that in and of itself is a lot of fun um it's kind of more now that i've actually played it it's kind of a more like arcadey fast-paced take on a puzzle game because you know more modern modern times you look at it, it may remind you of something like steam world dig that's a beer but it it, it is yeah but um it's a brewery. It's but a yeah brewery. like steam world dig yeah, oh, that's true. They make, it's a brewery that makes it. Do they have one called Modern Times at Modern, Modern Times? Times? No. They do have this one mm. beer called Monster Park, which is my favorite beer of all time, and it's only seasonal, so I will never be able to get it again. Is that where you got the growler from? Did we ever get a growler from Modern Times? No, it was some other place. That was Satan's Abbey or something like that in San Diego. So the Lost Abbey. Really... The Lost Abbey. There we go. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that was a ago. long time ago. Man. man, remember going to San times. Diego for yeah. for stuff? <laughs> yeah, that Comic Con. Yeah. <laughs> remember yeah. Comic Con? <laughs> man, it feels like a lifetime ago. But anyway, what I was trying mm-hmm. to say is, um, like it, it, to someone that sees Mister Drill for the first time now, it kind of looks like Steam World Dig, uh, which is kind of the, probably the bigger franchise of the two these days. But um, its pacing, like Mister Drill's p- pacing, is certainly a lot faster, and it's more about split second decisions in a way that like a Tetris or a Puzzle League is about dropping a puzzle piece, which which kind of makes it its own unique thing, which is pretty fun. And um, actually Tetris, now I think about it, is a pretty good point of reference for this specific version of Mr. Driller, Drill Land. Uh, specifically Tetris DS is a good point of reference because what was unique about Tetris DS is that it put so many different spins on the core Tetris formula. And Drill Land does the same here. So the premise is you're visiting this amusement park uh, with this colorful cast of the Mr. Driller world, which I guess is also the cast of Dig Dug, because apparently Mr. Driller is a spinoff of the same universe, which I didn't know until I like started looking into buying this game. Anyway, you're at this... I mean, Driller, Dig Dug, I mean, they're both doing the same yeah, thing. Yeah, essentially. But anyway, you're at this carnival. Uh, you're collecting these so you prize did... tickets to gain unlockables, but what? They're in the same mm-hmm. union together. Yeah, yeah, that must be it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but... Uh, yeah, so you're collecting unlockables, and then every ride you go on in the carnival is actually a different riff on the Mr. Driller formula. So in the same way that Tetris DS was all Tetris, but had like six different variants that felt like kind of different puzzle games, Mr. Driller Drill, Drill Land is the same idea with five different variants. So the, the core one, the core Mr. Driller experience is the World Tour attraction, which is straight up, as far as I can tell, normal Mr. Driller, themed kind of like it's a, kind of like the Epcot, like, uh, at Disney World, how you could like go to different countries. Or like it's a small world, how they emphasize different countries. Like that's kind of the theme. So as you go through each level of like the regular world tour, you go to a different country, which it's literally just translated by a little flag changing in the corner. But whatever, it's it's standard Mr. Driller. And then there's one called Star Driller, which is the same normal gameplay, but they add power up stone in, so randomly different things can happen on the board or to your drilling abilities. Uh, but then things get a little more interesting and wild. There's one called Drindy Adventure, which swaps the uh, 
the space theme of Star Driller for archaeology, which basically means Indiana Jones. So there's now spikes, there's traps, there's boulders, there's gold treasure you have to nab as you're navigating down the blocks. And of course, you still need to navigate down the blocks while doing all this. So it's just additional layers on top of the core formula. Then there's a Horror Night something, house, Horror Night Home, something like that, which um, introduces, it's like a whole different mechanic with holy water. Bear with me here. Uh, in this mode, so there are ghosts that will possess the blocks, and instead of air that you have to keep from depleting, you know, basically like a, a timer, there's a health bar. So where the obstacle of this comes in is that if you get near blocks possessed by ghosts, by the ghosts, you have to you um, lose health. So you have to actually go inject holy water into those blocks or spritz it or whatever you want to call it, which rids the ghosts and then saves you from depleting health, all while continuing your way down, you know, the level. Um, and if adding that mechanic wasn't enough, then there's a whole third mode called the whole of Druaga mode, which again, fittingly with the Tetris DS metaphor I'm running with here, um, is a mode based on an entirely different game. So the same way Tetris DS, like each mode was a different Nintendo franchise. This mode, whole of Druaga is based on Namco's Tower of Druaga, which is kind of a old school RPG dungeon crawler thing. And that means this mode is actually really elaborate. So you're still drilling. But now uh, it kind of is more like SteamWorld Dig in a way. Uh, you have a map. There are multiple rooms with branching paths. There are enemies you fight as you dig around. Ultimately, you need to find a key, and you go fight this big boss battle. And every time you drill, you lose one HP. So you have to be strategic about how you're going to drill, where you're going to drill, what you're going to do. Which is it's literally like a little diet RPG stuffed inside a puzzle game which is actually pretty impressive that they made it work. And, you know, again, like Tetris DS, what's cool about these modes is ultimately they're built from the same core game, right? So the like the core controls are all the same. The gameplay mechanics are all the same. The way the difficulties are structured are the same. Each of these modes has three different tiers of difficulty. They each leverage the same in-game shop to let you buy items to be able to use when going back into the puzzle should you need help. Uh, likewise, the presentation values are all equally good across all of them. Uh, really, the whole package is really nice looking because the nice thing about this game is in 2002 on GameCube, it used flat 2D hand-drawn art. So when they jumped to HD, it you know they it looks as good as any other modern game would because it's still flat 2D art that they just sort of up-resed. Um, and the music is also like there's some really catchy stuff in here. And even though it at times sounds kind of like the theme songs to kids shows, specifically the world tour mode, it's super catchy. Like I have it stuck in my head like days after every time I play it. Um, and they also left it very for i guess his personality and kind of maybe as a nod to his japanese roots they left everything pretty much in japanese so obviously the menus are in english and that sort of thing but the lyrics to songs are still in japanese the minimal amount of voice acting that is there one-liners and all that those are in japanese and it just kind of it feels like it really just helps the game's overall like personality in my opinion like it feels like very cohesive even with the japanese uh the, the one thing i have to nitpick though are the cutscenes. I don't know what it is about character-driven puzzle games like Mr. Driller or I guess Puyo Puyo, but it's okay. Like really, developers, it's okay to not necessarily have to build an elaborate backstory for why you're busting blocks or connecting beans or what have you. Like really, you don't need to do that. Like Mr. Driller's cutscenes, to be fair, are skippable after you watch them a first time, but they're so long that first time. And like the dialogue's so – I don't want to say cringe, but not – good like it's just i don't know it just seems like i'm just sitting there like wasting my time like literally the first time i beat up uh, beat up boot up the game there's like 
three to four minutes of cutscenes just to start playing a puzzle game. It's just like, why is this? Why is this a thing? Um, it's also worth knowing the game is pretty challenging from the outset, even on lower difficulties. They have a casual mode, which, uh, to be fair, I haven't tried, so maybe that's really where it's easier. But um, I wouldn't say if you play classic mode, that hinders the experience too much, but there's definitely a bit of a learning curve here, especially as you go into some of the more elaborate modes. Um, and But what's nice is because there are so many different modes, what I found myself doing is uh, just kind of hopping around. Like I never got too frustrated at one specific mode because if I got stuck – I, you know, take a break and go play World Tour, which is simpler, or go into, um, my favorite right now is Star Driller, which is the basic game with the power-ups. So, you know, I just rotate around and never really, like, made it feel like the experience was bogged down because there is so many different things to do. And, and that's kind of the thing, I guess, about Mr. Driller Drillland as a whole, and maybe even, um, why the cutscene specifically drove me so crazy is that this game is huh. perfect in concept to just swap in and out of. Like I've had the game since January, I think, and um, at the time I got on sale for like twelve bucks or so, which obviously it now isn't. But uh, and I, you know, I play it here and there, kind of piecemeal. But it makes for a great like side game or something that maybe you just want to sink a few minutes into after a ring fit session or a more you know quote unquote serious game like I don't know three D world or whatever. Um, but then at the same time, there's enough depth to it that. Um, Especially like when you get the rush of successfully grabbing an air capsule and then comboing, you know, some blocks while dodging ones that are falling at just the right second. Like there's that rush and depth to it that there is enough that you can just sit here and play it for longer sessions and not get bored either. So it kind of like finds that sweet spot between the two. So yeah, that, that's pretty much it. Like I said, I got, I got this for 12 bucks. Uh, and at that price, absolutely between the five single player modes, there's two multiplayer ones I haven't even mentioned or tried. Uh, like there's enough content here at that price. And I would say it's an SRP is 30. I would say at 30 bucks, if you like puzzle games, there's probably enough here for you. I mean, five different, essentially separate puzzle games sort of interlaced with one another. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a slightly different type of puzzle game. But if you're looking for like a game in between games or something to have on the side, like it's really fun. It's, it's, it's very polished feeling. And it's a little bit of gaming history. Cause I mean, this game literally is 18 years old. No one's played it outside Japan. It's, it's kind of cool to like have this slice of what gaming was at that era available now. I mean, even down to the button colors on the menus are still GameCube button colors, like green A button, red B button, that sort of thing. So like you could see the roots and it's, it's pretty cool. So I'd recommend it for those reasons. Um, the roots is the name of a band, right? It sure is. It's Jimmy Fallon's house band, but also a oh, well established band oh, in their own right. Oh. <laughs> I did not mean to connect it back to him in some way. My bad people. My bad. <laughs> It's okay, Angel. It's okay. Um, I did want to say there's one other thing I appreciate about Mr. Driller, though, um, and that is him, like the the guy, like his vibe, his existence, the like ethos of his era of like the er- the like early 2000s and 90s like mascots, like not you know not the Mars and Socks and Crashes of the world, but like the ones that are level below that that now seem to only exist when indie developers make them. You know, like nowadays we have like Shovel Knight and Ukulele, which isn't a knock against them whatsoever. I mean, Shovel Knight has a kid's meal now, like in a restaurant. Like that's good for him. He really made it. Um, The heck? Yeah, he, you don't know about this? Yeah, he has an Arby's kid's meal, Shovel Knight. So if you go to Arby's right now, you can get... (laughs) Who does though? Listen, someone does because that company's somehow still around. Um, but if you go to Arby's, I mean, I do follow their Instagram, and I'm, as I'm sure many do, just because the that Instagram craft. is really great. Uh-huh. But um, yeah, it's kind of funny that that's. I feel like they're more known for that. 
than and and I think that's game. how Shovel Knight of all characters ended up with a kids meal at Arby's because they're leaning in on that gamer market who do who do know Shovel Knight. But nonetheless, it's cool because you go you go to Arby's, you get like it's like a launch disc or something. I don't know. It's some little thing with the different Shovel Knight characters on it, uh, and you can collect mm-hmm. them all. But each one also comes with a DLC code for the Switch version of Shovel Knight Tre- Treasure Trove that unlocks special in-game stuff too. I think each disc mm. is tied to a different in-game item or food or something and you get them from the kids meal so so that's pretty cool but my, my point was like um there's this period in time where companies had like for lack of a better term like a b-tier mascot like they the, you know they they made this whole world building they had these designs they did like you know the unnecessary cutscenes in mr driller it was just for these like lesser characters and i kind of miss that because now it feels like because everyone's focusing on have to the big triple a releases we don't have that as much but what's been kind of cool to see is you know something like mr driller come out and then um he's not the only one that's kind of getting this second lease on life on switch because switch is all about nostalgia at the moment and has been for a while so you know all the lapsed gamers and stuff so like bomberman for example he had a pretty big uh release at switch launch with bomberman r and it's now been announced that he might get a big second wind because the previously stadia exclusive super bomberman r online is coming to switch and um do you, do you guys know about this game at all it's it's actually I a cool concept know it, I, I remember when it was announced for the other consoles and thinking why isn't this on switch right like it's so so, so yeah it's basically konami took, <laughs> we got the original one exactly konami took the original game superman r which <laughs> which was a switch launch title and a big selling one and then they put it on stadia they scaled it out to 64 player battle royale like, it makes so much sense on Switch. They even have the 64, Nintendo 64. Come on, Nintendo. It makes sense. Bring it back. And, I mean, really what it really was was, um, you know, the Tetris 99 or the Mario 35 formula applied to Bomberman. So you're still doing your thing in a normal bomberman size level with a normal number of opponents, but the sides of the screen are flanked with a bunch of other battles also happening. And the longer you last in yours, the fewer battlefields remain until ultimately, hopefully, you're the winner. That's the idea, at least. And, uh, from my understanding, the, the, like, it is very much Barman R. Like, to your point, Andrew, like, we had the originals. So, like, all the outfits are there. Um, there are some new ones too. There's like a hundred different customizations. Um, but it's the same engine, the same games, the same controls, just with this online first angle. Uh, where it does differ though is that even when it comes to Switch ultimately, which I don't think they've dated yet, but it's going to be free to play now. So you'll be able to hop into the 64-person battles without paying anything. Um, but if you do show out, I think it's 10 bucks. you get all the, these other modes that kind of feel more like regular Barman. So you get private battles. You get a standard battle mode. You get a slight lighter, like, 16-person battle mode. And then all the Konami character skins from the original that we own uh, are available in online if you pay the 10 buck premium package fee. So it's, it's like they kind of just, in like, reversed... The structure of the game a little but i don't know you are angel you own r i own r are you gotta check this out if, i mean it's free to play it seems silly not to probably not because well you're silly <laughs> you're silly then like what's the point battle royale 64 players it's different it's the same I as mean, tetris 99 monster hunter is this well so, okay yeah. this isn't out just yet so you you can get over monster who oh, i can't you're never getting over monster, monster hunter Hunt. takes like years to complete all right did you see how long they supported world i mean yeah until a couple months ago that's true that's true and they're already laying out so many plans for a uh, rise on switch like the, the updates with the new monsters like coming at the end of april and at may and etc cetera, etc cetera. so i see your point yeah 
I mean, frankly, it's a little too much, but yeah. It, you know that I feel like that's becoming an issue. To be entirely honest, that game and is I becoming yeah, I mean, a little too much. Like not I every game a needs little two years cheek, of support. But, <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, I was being a little tongue in cheek, but at the same time, I there is truth to that. I do kind of feel like sometimes there is too much content. Like, yeah, no, totally. I, I, I get it. Like they're kind of releasing these games with the intent that you're literally only going to be playing their game, which. Yeah. You know, I guess it's fine, but I don't think that's the way to go because it makes me less likely to pick up a game knowing that, like, oh, this is going to take up all my time, but I still want to play the other games. I like a game that respects time. your time and knows you're playing other games, like Rhythm Heaven. I... It, has a ton of, <laughs> it has a ton of content, but it's very bite-sized at the same time. I mean, if I want to play a game for, like, a really long time, I mean, I would kind of rather it be, like, a single-player story. Like, Monster Hunter is kind of an exception. Because, you know, like, there's also games like Smash Brothers that also take up a tenure of time. But that's kind of, like, it's on you. It's not like like Monster Hunter where, like, they just keep adding and adding and adding and adding and adding. It's like, just when you think you're done, it's like, oh, you're not done. <laughs> and, and like, to your point, it, every game is doing this. Like, I mean, obviously, Barman, they're, they're taking the Tetris 99 approach here, right? Like, make a free Battle Royale-ified version of a game that everyone already knows then upsell it with more traditional parts for people to you know like if they if they try battle around they want to scratch the itch of the original here you go 10 bucks you can like even the fact that they're paralleling like the nintendo themed skins with the konami character skins like yeah it's very tetris 99 what they're doing but to your point about like not respecting time so barman sounds like it's a one and done you buy the premium thing you're it's you're in you're out whatever like tetris but then another B-tier mascot franchise was just announced as coming to Switch 2, which is Worms. Now, we had Worms WMD already on Switch, and that's a regular Worms game. But then they announced this new one, Worms Rumble, which exactly to your point, they're pitching as like, oh, it's going to be like – there's going to be seasons and community events and daily challenges and all this stuff that will let you customize your worm even further. And it's just like – is that necessary <laughs> like i think the yeah. idea of worms rumble is kind of cool it's a uh it's a real-time version of worms where there are 32 people on a battlefield at once and you have to wait to take turns you're all shooting your weapons at once um and it, it the way it's like kind of come to be is very it, it parallels bomberman online very interestingly because they both were like kind of a more more multiplayer version of an already multiplayer game and they also start exclusively on other platforms. Like Worms Rumble was PlayStation exclusive in December, but now it's coming with cross-play support, as will Bomberman. But it's just like, do we need Worms to have seasons and daily challenges and community events? Is there enough of an audience for that when there's a bajillion other games all doing the same thing? Like, yeah, because I, I mean, it it's a shame. Because like, as I love to say over and over again, like we only have so much time in this world, <laughs> and because of like the nature of a lot of these like content heavy games we can only really manage like and i would say healthily manage maybe like three to four of them yeah like maybe five if depending on like how demanding your job is but like you know like i'm heavily invested in hearthstone brawl stars smash brothers and i'm trying to get final fantasy in there kind of hard to make time for that one. Mm-hmm. I want to get into more into Monster Hunter. We'll see how that goes. Like the time is already like pretty much already kind of done with those, like the spare time. And you know, then there's those other things that we're still doing. Like luckily having a set schedule to play certain games, like does wonders. Like I love that. Like, yeah, I would like to get better at rocket league, but 
I don't feel stressed to do so because I only ever play it with my friends on Wednesdays. Like when we get to it, same thing with Splatoon. It's like we're all improving at the same time. We're all sucking mm-hmm. at the game at the same time. <laughs> like it's great. Like it has its own little tank car for it. And it's kind of hard to carve out games that you're just playing on your own because, you know, you either tend to play way too much, way too less. I don't know. It's it's all over the place. And, and to be fair, say that like those the are game... literally the only games that I play. The, the, the one, the oh, but, but even then, like, Kevin, are you going to, hypothetically, like, let's say you enjoy a good round of Bomberman. I don't know if you do. Let's say you do. Are you going to go, okay, I'm going to give up one of the games I'm currently spending time on to go become a pro at Bomberman Battle Royale? Oh, God, no. Yeah, I mean, like, if I that's kind really of, like it. But, but like, I and I guess, to be fair, the gaming audience is so big now that these games can live in harmony. But I'm just thinking, like, how many – the crossover, the overlap of someone who's a Bomberman fan and a Worms fan versus only liking one or the other, do they have time to do both? And if you're a Bomberman fan, are you so dedicated to Bomberman that you're going to, like, give up other games to do Bomberman Battle Royale? Are you so dedicated to Worms that you're going to do daily challenges in Worms? And if you're that person, I don't see how you're not equally about both games because they're kind of cut from a similar cloth of style, you know? So yeah, it's, especially when they're that similar, it's like yeah. yeah. So it's just like, and again, I think the audience is big enough that you can carve out a niche for each of these games. Like Ninjala somehow is chugging along there at season five. They have like five million players. You know, they're doing their thing. But like, the more each individual genre goes towards this, and each type of game goes towards this, the more you start to have the centers of the Venn diagram sort of spring up, and the more that audience, that sliver. Uh, gets split in too many directions and it, it it's gonna suck for someone that has something totally mapped out only to have to sort of let it die on the vine and i don't know who that's gonna be i don't know if it's gonna be worms rumble or Bomberman. like i'm excited to try Bomberman. i'm not gonna try worms probably but um you know excited to try it. it's not the same as i'm gonna be so dedicated to its in-game events assuming it does what worms does and has like community events and seasons and daily challenges and what have you so yeah, yeah. It's it's a weird like it's a weird tipping point. It's like everyone, it's very much like the streaming wars, right? Like every company's like, oh, now we need to get a streaming platform. And it's like, well, do you though? Like, is someone gonna pay ninety, a hundred, a hundred ten dollars for all these different streaming platforms, or are they just gonna pick and choose what they want, or are they gonna jump in and out at different times and have like a month here, a month there, which is fine for a streaming or service? Or they're just pirate. Yeah, or pirate. But as I say, it's fine for a streaming service if they jump in and out. But what's that mean for a game where you need a player base to engage with? Like if people are like, I'll come back in a month. Who's playing in that first month? And what's going to not discourage new players from wanting to come back if there's no one there? So it's like there's so many moving parts. And I kind of miss you just buy a game and that's the whole thing right there in your hands. Yeah. Yeah. But nonetheless, I do appreciate these B-tier characters suddenly getting like a second wind. Like that's cool. More options is great, though. I mean, oh, for the sure. fact that they, all these things, like, I mean, yeah, even though I've mentioned you can only really handle, like, three to four, maybe five games, like, to their fullest, that doesn't mean you can't ever switch out of them if you find something that, you know, just, like, gels with you way better. I can think of five that I'm playing at the top of my head right now. What are they? <laughs> uh, Final Fantasy, Genshin, Apex Legends, Valorant, uh, there's probably one more that I'm forgetting in there. See, that's actually that's, me. that's actually you're a good example of what I'm saying about like the overlap of audience because like Crucible or whatever that Amazon one was, it's kind of cut from a similar cloth, right? And then like they had to backpedal that thing so hard, and who knows if they had? I'm sure two years mapped out. Who knows what's got hit? Or like uh, 
what's the ea one that they just announced they're not going to continue with their roadmap for i'm drawing a blank um oh anthem yeah yeah like that one was like like we've talked before how like a game could be saved thanks to games of services you know like no man's sky got turned around and that sort of thing but like anthem whew, they had a whole other thing they're gonna reboot it completely and then they just pulled the plug and like how many games mm. like when you bought that game you were buying it with the expectation of x y and z and it got to maybe just x like that's it's it's dicey this sort of thing oh, poor anthem didn't even get to x yeah you're right it got to like just the top triangle half of an x maybe <laughs> like the v on the top but um but i do appreciate like i said the fact that this lets some of the like kind of campy b-tier like mascots of the 90s and 2000s come back in a more meaningful way potentially is is, is kind of cool because i i like that era of gaming where everything was just sort of like they're all these like ridiculous warm and fuzzy mascots and then they all kind of went away so I'm, I'm glad to see them back um warm and fuzzy you know what i mean like like mr george is happy like barman's just like this you know this little guy with a ball on his head like worms had were like kind of like a little sassy in the sonic sense but like it was just like this era of gaming that sort of you know like arrow the acrobat or like silly ones like that like tonic trouble glover like all these like weird one-off mascots like i kind of miss little character platformers yeah or not even just like the gameplay but just the characters that came out of those platformers yeah gex (laughs) remember gex like just that sort of thing yeah so it's nice to see him kind of trickle back um anyway yeah so that was mr driller and another tangent um that's what we've been playing uh and playing on, I guess, in the case of your Hori Split Splat Pro. But um, I guess some news, too, now that I think about it. But there was also one other thing that uh, I want to talk about, which I've been watching. Specifically, Crackles playing with power the Nintendo it's story. QC. Well, it's a Nintendo documentary. All about Nintendo. Um, which, conceptually, the fact that it's on Crackle, I thought was kind of funny. Like a Nintendo documentary on a Sony-owned platform. But then I learned when watching it, Crackle is no longer owned by Sony. It's owned by the people who published Chicken Soup for the Soul, which is maybe weirder because like every episode starts with like Chicken Soup for the Soul Entertainment presents and then it jumps into Nintendo, which is not a pairing I ever expected to see. Um, anyway, pre- to preface this, I think I'm the only I mean, one. That's kind of what, how people would describe Nintendo. It's true. Actually, you know what? That's fair. That's fair. Maybe it has a deeper, deeper meaning. Um, but did either of you guys watch any of Playing With Power? I think I'm the only one. No. <laughs> Come on, you think that we're going to go on Crackle? <laughs> Nothing about that documentary <laughs> sounds like something any self-respecting Nintendo fan should watch. Wow, okay. Shots fired. I, at Crackle and me. But no, I, 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 it does make sense, I guess, of the three of us, I'd be the only one that actually watched it, considering I watched both consoles. Why would you want to watch a documentary of things you already know? Well, that's the, the thing, I didn't know. If they... But that's the thing I didn't know. Like, I mean, yeah, granted, I saw Netflix's um, video game documentary, and I saw Console Wars on CBS or Paramount Plus now, I guess. Um, and, you know, I think anyone that knows anything about me, like, always am about this Nintendo history. And I don't mind the repetition, Angel. Like, I read – I said this when watching the other documentaries. Obviously, those overlapped. I've also read multiple books on Nintendo's history, including Game Over, and I have the Iwata Ask book pre-order, which – is out, I think, in, like, a couple weeks, actually. So that, that's cool. But my point is, like, on some level, like, I'm just about, like, the idea of just having a five-part docuseries all about Nintendo. Like, that's right up my alley. And no matter how much I can criticize it, there's some level of just, like, slight, like, disbelief almost that this exists in the first place. And if anyone has any interest in checking it out, like, just because it exists, like, I would, you know, if this does well, there's going to be other opportunities for other types of documentaries that maybe do dive into more new information. So, like... If you have any remote interest, it's probably worth watching just 
to absorb it sure, up. Sure, they do got to start somewhere. Yeah, um, but it doesn't mean this was perfect. By no means was it perfect. Uh, I I think as like as I made my way through the five episodes, and I imagine as other people will, um, it it starts to you sort of encounter a gradual slide in quality that I think is in large part to blame on what they chose to focus on. I mean, the the whole series is very, very chronological from like the playing cards to the early consoles up through the Switch. And I think why it starts to go down in quality is really like the – it starts with the lineup of the talking heads, like frankly. Like for the early years of the NES and the Super Nintendo, it's pretty solid. They have Howard Phillips. They have Don James and uh, Ron Judy who were like early NOA guys. They Gail Tilden who was early marketing at NOA. She created Nintendo Power. Uh, they have some personal anecdotes and color commentary kind of in tandem with that from various personalities like Cliff Belinsky and Will Wheaton um, and Allison uh, – Hat- Will Zip. Wheaton? Yeah, I don't know why he's there. I know he's like nerd culture representative, but whatever. But like it was his anecdotes. He wasn't like talking about the history. He was talking about his connection with it. And then they have, you know, competitor perspectives in there, um, competitor perspectives. So Phil Spencer from Xbox has a lot in there. Tom uh, Kalinske of Sega of America, Nolan Bushnell of Atari. Uh, but as they move forward through the story it starts to, of Nintendo, it starts to kind of fade. Like they do have Perrin Kaplan who headed up Nintendo's marketing through the GameCube. And they even have Reggie which is cool, but their anecdotes are, like, not really there. Like, when discussing the GameCube, I think Kaplan's only comment was, like, oh, yeah, it needed to overcome the fact that it looked like a lunchbox. And then Reggie, like, literally all I remember him saying is how Link to the Past was his first, uh, like, the Super Nintendo was his first system and Link to the Past was his favorite game. That's, like, his only anecdote in a five-part documentary Um, about Nintendo. He never said what's wrong with you? Uh, No, he did not. No. I'm saying to them what's wrong with them for not leveraging him more. And I think... um, I think honestly it's because of who they talk to and what they covered that the – like those people they talked to that the show had to skew towards being stronger in the start of Nintendo's early years because literally like those early episodes are 20 minutes longer per episode than the ones about the DS, the Wii, the Wii U, the Switch. And throughout all of them, they do have some Nintendo historians that kind of like explain what's going on. Uh, you know, They have a collector. They have an author. They have a Chris Kohler who has like an encyclopedia – encyclopedia brain about nintendo like he's be a journalist i think he works at um some publisher now uh but they sort of use those guys these anecdotes and string it all together with a narrative by uh, sean astin and the anecdotes from the personalities Wait, 51st dates no what is he in that i think stranger sean things astin? think stranger things yeah 51st dates he's yeah, in that it's, uh, think right. stranger things sean astin think lord of the rings yeah, I'm trying to give something slide. that's topical and timely to our time. Oh, fine. <laughs> 2000, 2012 Ninja Turtles, he was Raphael. There's a reference that everyone immediately will connect with, yes. Yep. <laughs> yep. But anyway, yeah, the, the number... <laughs> but yeah, the, uh, the number of... The number of anecdotes and, like, okay? the perspectives and the people, like, who were there in those moments, it does start to diminish in later episodes, which makes it feel less like a behind-the-scenes, like, behind-the-curtain look of what's going on and more of, like, a summary of the play in front of the curtain, the one that like we've all seen because we lived through it. Like it's not the best analogy, but you know what I mean, right? Like it went from like all these behind the scenes stories from the early guys to like, you know, Chris Kohler going, so then the Wii came out and it was big because it was popular with casuals. And it's like, yep, thank you. Uh, but, and I think, I think a big part of this is uh, because one underlying 
an arguably questionable move is the documentary is very heavily skewed towards what Nintendo is up to in America. And I get it. America is the biggest market. It's the cultural hub of the world. And for things like selling the NES, they're going to war with Sega. Oh, yeah, brother. Yeah, America. But, you know, selling the NES, going to war with Sega, falling into third place behind, like, Western-centric lineups of PS2 and the original Xbox. Like, that makes sense. That America would be the focus. But when you start talking about the DS or the Wii, you know, it becomes apparent that they didn't really have too many of those movers or shakers available to the show. Like, they did a good job early on of focusing on Gunpei Yokoi as kind of the driving force of early Nintendo handhelds uh, and the Virtual Boy. And, of course, uh, they mentioned Miyamoto, although kind of weirdly they mentioned him in the context of just the original Mario and then the free-range 3D movement of Mario 64, and they didn't really, like, touch on anything else he did in between. Um, but they even, like, you know, give a couple more than a passing glance to uh, Hiroshi Yamauchi, who is Nintendo's president i think his first name Hiroshi, who was nintendo's president before iwata was um so he gets a decent amount of coverage and how he shaped the console arms race nintendo was in and kind of drove decisions like cartridges over discs for the n64 but again when they get to the ds or the wii there's like nobody like they do a whole bit about how yamauchi died after he was already retired when he was no longer a key player at nintendo but they don't spend any time on iwata even though he died while being president of nintendo they spend no time on the guy who, you know, essentially saved Nintendo by pivoting their hardware strategy. Uh, they spend no time on this guy who, same guy, obviously, Iwata, who um, was a developer, then turned exec, and that sensibility pretty much shaped a lot of the gameplay that was so prominent in the DS and Wii era. Like, they completely blow him off. He has about as much time as the Virtual Boy, which is a total of maybe 45 seconds each. It's just incredibly bizarre for a documentary that's supposedly all of Nintendo's history just leaving out Satoru Iwata. And that's kind of my biggest gripe with the show. It's just like the pacing. Maybe because Iwata's so big and important, they're going to dedicate a whole episode just to him? Well, it's over already. The five parts are out. So unless they're doing a sequel oh, documentary. Right. But they already. Yeah, the but that's the thing. The, the pacing doesn't make sense. Because let's say they do a sequel. They blew right past where he would be relevant. So now the sequel theoretically would pick up with the Switch. It's a mid. It's a mid-cool. I, maybe, maybe. Yeah, it's like it's like uh, it's the Samus Returns of the pa- playing the Power documentary series. Yes, um, but yeah, the pacing, just like the fact that you know they chose to focus so much on Yamauchi, or they chose. I get some of it's because they don't have talking heads from Japan, but like the pacing's just all over the place. Like, sure, don't spend time on Iwata, but do talk about the 3DO as if it was a real threat at any point in time to any other console. Like, I think a lot of this, like I was saying, does have to do with who they were able to talk to. Like, sure. If you have Trip Hawkins, a 3DO segment makes sense. He's the founder of EA. He did the 3DO. I get it. But I do wonder about the lack of representation of Nintendo's like home office in Japan, like I was kind of saying. Like how much of that was them trying to get folks, be it Miyamoto or someone else, and Nintendo saying no? Or was it a conscious effort to focus on the U.S. side of things? And if it's the latter, like that just lines up with other odd pacing decisions they made, like – even among all these great U.S.-centric talking heads, so much time is spent on these superfluous montages. Like, they have some with headlines flying around on top of one another, with, like these Instagram filtery looking things of other Nintendo images. They have others that are set, uh, they kind of set the year randomly. So, like, they'll just be miscellaneous movie clips and pop culture, like Zeitgeist moments. It's like, the year what, you know, it was the year when Titanic won the Oscar, and the Spice Girls did da-da-da, and Nintendo was doing, but they spend, like, 30 seconds just showing more than 30 seconds like a minute minute and a half just showing random footage of not related things just to sort of set the scene where they could just say what i said and do it as well um and even when they don't have footage you know like pre-video games what footage are you showing of nintendo like how you show their taxi service or their love hotel or like their playing cards and they they did it with these kind of neat dioramas where they actually they're like these 
they basically built these little miniatures that are very stylized um, and kind of cartoony, but they will like pan through them to show like the card factory or whatever or the taxi service. But they linger on those shots for so long. Like I get someone built the diorama, but like there's got to be something you could show besides just the diorama. So like on their own, each of these things aren't too bad. Like the time saying montages, like I was kind of saying, are actually kind of neat for context, but together all used in the same show sometimes even back to back it feels like the show's just like digging its heels a little and not really like going as deep as it could it makes it all feel kind of surface level um and while that obviously bugs me out because um it's just there's a missed opportunity there what i think is particularly kind of a bummer is they have good stuff like when they have good stuff they have good stuff i mean some of the anecdotes are really interesting the deeper insights or critiques by like legit gaming industry icons are interesting you know there's one where phil spencer was talking about how uh, he could never take a leap like Nintendo did with the Wii. Like, that really, for some reason, stuck out to me. Like, he was saying, like, I would never be in a business position where I could do what Nintendo... Like, I would not be comfortable doing what Nintendo did. And, you know, seeing little clips like uh, Howard Phillips revisiting, like, Donkey Kong, that was kind of cool. And I, I particularly appreciated um, that because this thing was five episodes, they did, early on, have breathing room to talk about, like, the pre-video game stuff. So they dedicated time to the Love Tester and the Ultra Hand and all these products Nintendo made in the 60s and 70s, and that was really interesting. I just wish they had a way to, like, better balance those with equally cool tidbits in the later episodes instead of just falling back on montages of newspaper clippings or what have you. So, so that's kind know, of... Hmm. Uh, do you know who exactly was behind this? Yeah, it's a guy named... Uh, oh, what was his first name? Uh, Jeremy or Justin uh, Seed or Sheed or something like that. He was the guy that did video games in the movie, so he has experience doing this before. Um, and he had a whole... Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, that's weird because video games in the movie is like a really... Oh, wait. I'm... You're thinking of no, never mind. You're I, was thinking thinking of indie, I was thinking indie game. The indie movie, game, yeah. the movie is the oh, pinnacle. I like that document. That is the yeah. We we watched it together. I think Angel. That is the yeah. pinnacle Followed of game documentaries. And I forgot what else. Uh, King of Kong. Kong is another good one. King of Kong is also King of Kong and indie game, game, the movie are the two like water like the watershed gaming documentaries, which is like what kind of sucks about this. Like I wasn't necessarily expecting that great because it's too broad. You can't why indie game and king of kong worked is it was such a narrowly focused topic right like one's just a couple guys playing donkey kong one's two dudes making a game um so obviously you can't do that but i just wish i don't know like on the one hand like i said having this much about nintendo five nearly six hours is pretty awesome and there are great nuggets throughout but the sum of its parts like sort of bogs it down like it's it's obviously limited by who they could talk to but those people just weren't maximized. Like the way they did not even use Reggie makes no sense to me. And as a result, like the the ratio of montages to not just drags it, and and, and the ratio of American centric parts to not just kind of makes you not know about some of the stuff that actually happened. But 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 like I said, I'm gonna watch any of these happily. Like mm-hmm. I'm all about these things. And if you are too, anyone listening, like just know in going, know in go in knowing these qualms, and you're probably gonna be okay. Um, the only two things to look out for that I didn't mention. Number one. Crackle's ads suck. Like, not so much the ads, yep. but they're, they're, there's no designated stopping points for when they're playing, so it's very jarring when it happens. It's like sometimes, it's never in mid-sentence, but sometimes in mid-segment. Um, I guess that's kind of the trade-off for the series being completely free, but there's got to be a better way to do it. So that's number one. Number two, uh, keep your TV remote handy because I, for whatever reason, maybe it's just me, but I, I checked, uh, my girlfriend thought the same thing. I saw online people were saying the same thing. 
the sound gets so loud. Like the score, the music score is so loud it overpowers the people speaking, which makes no sense in a documentary where people only are speaking. I mean, it, it, I oh, had to the turn... effect. Yeah, pretty much. But, like, why? <laughs> I had to actually, like, turn on subtitles. It was getting so much. Like, it, you know, they had, like, swelling music when Nolan Bushwell was talking about, like, yeah, and then, like, Pong was... Or, like, Atari crashed, and it sucked. And it'd be, like, you know, bombastic music, and all you hear is, like, her, 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 her. I'm like, what do you say? <laughs> so, like, that's the one thing a documentary you think should be able to do. But all these gripes aside... It's easier to talk about negatives than positives. I think the anecdotes are cool. There's enough here to enjoy if you're into this sort of thing. I wouldn't say write it off completely. Just go in tempering your expectations, essentially. Um, I will say, though, one thing that Playing with Power sort of pushed to the front of my mind is just how different Nintendo's eras of hardware were. Like you had the spec race up through the GameCube, the Yamauchi era, essentially – and um, in the series, you know, they spent a good chunk of an episode covering, like, how the N64's graphics are actually really good compared to competitors. And then, you know, go to DS and Wii, and they didn't cover this as much, but you pivot to the Iwata era, and it's not so much about power. It's about accessibility and new ways to play and casual, friendly fare. It's about sending a message? Hmm? It's about sending a message? Yes, it's their mobsters. What do you mean? <laughs> oh, okay, they it's not about power. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it, yes, it's about sending a message that games are all-encompassing and welcoming. Look at that. Look at how I spun that. But yeah, so what, what I'm getting at is it was interesting to have these sort of two eras at the forefront of my mind. And then like two days after finishing this, Bloomberg reported again on the supposed 4K switch and how it's doing 4K. It's actually kind of interesting. Um, it, they're using an NVIDIA technology, supposedly, called DLSS. So who knows how Deep DLSS... Deep super sampling. I, I figured you would know, Kevin. Um, it's What is it? It's basically neural networks, right? It's uh, just straight up black magic. Like, <laughs> it's it's awesome. Yeah, I think from my understanding, it's literally using uh, like deep machine learning, it's like neural networks to figure out in real time on the chip without using the power of the other stuff on the system, how to up res lower quality content. So you can have like a sub HD yep. or a low HD game and then have it output in 1080p or 4K and have it actually like look not stretched or scaled up but like good right yeah pretty much which is kind of first of all wild that technology can do that but it kind of got me thinking that in some ways this is something new for nintendo though it's like a return to the yamauchi era by way of the iwata era like iwata's era is already defined by you know nintendo's ability to harness lower powered devices in some creative new engaging way uh switch is very much of that era too you know it's not a powerhouse but it does something very different uh but now with everything taught that's being talked about with the 4k switch you know even last episode the idea that perhaps you know we were banging around maybe the switch upgrade is just that's like a pro version with more features and more power it almost feels like nintendo's back in the hardware arms race but like sort of in a hybrid way like it's not just the yamuchi raw power thing it's not just i want keep it cheap it's like a new third i guess you, the furikawa error uh, era because it's his thing now but like think about it on paper nintendo's now matching what the other guys can do they can render in 4K. They can render at 60 frames per second. Technically, there are caveats. Like, it's not really 4K. It's this magic up res. But, you know, it's it means you can guarantee a game will be at 60 frames because you can build it at whatever low res you need it to be to hit 60 and then just res it up to 4K, uh, at least theoretically. Um, according to Bloomberg's report, though, games are going to need specific new code to run this DLSS, which means older games would have to be patched. But nonetheless, they can essentially 
retroactively and going forward take games that were sub hd that were kind of running choppy you know like the witcher or whatever throw this code in it up the fidelity and up the run the running uh frame rate which is wild to think about and it's like totally the most nintendo way of doing it because it's you know what nintendo's doing here in my opinion at least is matching two major tech feature checkboxes of its competitors but in a way that doesn't tax the power, doesn't affect the costs as much. It's like Nintendo's own weird, like, Nintendo-y way of hit, getting to the same goal, but doing it, like, through a completely different route. And that, it's just, I don't know, it's interesting to me. Because, you know, it could apply to handheld mode, too. Like, it's an easy way to sort of fix handheld mode games, too. Like, I mentioned The Witcher. That one had horrible um, frame rate on handheld, from what I've heard. Like, five, you know, and it was at, running at, like, 540 or whatever. And again, you would need to push code to the game and do an update to do it. But I've got to imagine that Nintendo's going to be doing like enhanced versions of at least the big evergreen titles a bit. So then the people that buy the Switch Pro or Plus or whatever they end up calling it, um, all those people that enter with this new Switch, with this like OLED screen Switch, um, they're going to buy up those games that already existed and are still being promoted. So theoretically, Nintendo's going to be updating all those games, which means theoretically all of us current Switch owners that may upgrade are now getting like a fidelity boost and potentially a performance boost in games you already have, which is something PlayStation and Xbox already do. But for Nintendo, they haven't done something strictly that power heavy or power focused in a long time. So it, it, it's interesting to me. Um, kind of exciting, honestly. Like it's, it's like the middle ground. Um, yeah, I don't know. Just that, 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 like watching a documentary and then seeing that news, I was just like, wow, this is such an interesting. Cause, you know, even last episode, we talked about, um, how, oh, are there going to be exclusive Switch enhanced game, you know, like OLED Switch games only, where it's like you have to buy, you know, like the DSi, the games like Xenoblade that were only on the DSi. And, um, even the new 3DS had a couple exclusives, I think. And then going back to Game Boy Color, there were exclusives, but nothing since the Game Boy Color did the thing where like, oh, your existing library gets an enhancement too. Like, I think a few games on 3DS, on new 3DS, had um, faster frame rates. Like, I think Hyrule Legends did if you played it on the new 3DS. But that's only because it came out after a new 3DS. It's not like suddenly Kid Icarus Uprising played better or whatever on the new 3DS. But theoretically, in the way that the Game Boy Color could apply color to black and white games on some level, theoretically, this is the first time I was doing something like that with a more modern system. So it's pretty exciting. Like, I'm getting pretty excited thinking about it, um, especially since, like, you know, Nintendo and NVIDIA have proven this works before. I don't know if you guys remember in J- in Japan, in China, a couple of years ago, they had a Shield TV, and they released Wii games in HD on the Shield TV, and they actually looked pretty good when they were making the rounds online. Um, I believe those weren't done in real time. I think they were done off-device in a development environment. But still, um, they were done with AI. They were scaled up, not by hand, but by algorithm. So I would imagine if, it, if that works so well there and they're confident that they can do it on a chip in real time now, I would imagine it's going to actually look pretty good. <laughs> so I don't know. like that. It, it almost sold me on the 4K Switch even more than I was kind of already sold. But it, it's, it's, it, I don't know. It's just exciting, the possibilities. It is. I mean, I really – I mean, after your – Spending minutes with Monster Hunter is definitely something I would really want to get my hands on now. Mm-hmm. Also, like, because whenever, because of my current circumstance, I've been playing in handheld mode more often than dock mode. And I know that wouldn't really necessarily help with the, I guess, with the AI learning 
to improve the resolution, but when I'm playing in handheld mode, my Switch is now louder than the speakers. So <laughs> that's a problem. Yeah, so I yeah, I definitely like need an upgrade, but I will not buy another normal Switch at this point. I feel like after four years, like I, it needs to be something better. Right. Like it it doesn't feel productive to, you know, get the Monster Hunter edition. Like it would just have to be whatever comes next at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, you know, none of this, and and it's funny because like I'm saying like oh I'm so excited, but like I honestly when I put my Switch to when I plugged it into my 4K TV that I got in November, I was really impressed by the vibrancy and overall look of the games on that tv granted i came from a 2012 tv before that but an hd one but nonetheless like if i thought that looked good i can't even imagine what real even if algorithm generated 4k is gonna look like like that's you know the vibrancy the like the like pop the personality that like came out of that 4k image where it's just uprezzed oh you know good old hd games like i can't imagine what real 4k is gonna look like have you have you seen what DLSS actually does? Like, have you seen any comparisons? I've seen some, and there are a couple. I saw a couple, and one was like pointing out that it kind of glosses things over at times, but that or you know, kind of like smooth, like it has kind of like not a Vaseline look, but a little. It's not necessarily the crispest yeah. textures, but like Nintendo's art styles cater to that really well. They don't necessarily have such intricately detailed textures. Like Metroid, maybe would be the one that would be most noticeable to me. But I mean, have you I Kevin? Check out uh, Digital Foundry's videos on DLSS. It's quite literally a game changer, and it's so mm. incredibly savvy of Nintendo to use it. Like that's it's it's like a whole different Nintendo. It's really impressive that they're using it. But yeah, I'll check that out. That actually sounds interesting. Um, I want to see this Black Magic. Whole different Nintendo. I mean, think Angel. When was the last time they ever emphasized anything about power? Like even the Wii U and the 3DS, the Switch, power. Well, to I mean, be fair, this isn't technically power. Well, not necessarily power, but tech, tech spec. Let me rephrase. You're right, not power, tech spec. When did tech spec become the sign point? Because Switch was portability, Wii U was the gamepad, 3DS was, um, you can look inside the game now. Like there was never just a like direct one to one. PlayStation does 4K, so do we. Like that was Virtual Boy was like, we're gonna give you a headache. Yep. exactly <laughs> and look how that ended up it got 45 seconds in a five-hour documentary that's where that ended up um but yeah so it, it is a little like different mindset for nintendo but it's like a, like i said it's kind of a marrying of the iwata approach of keeping costs down with like the more techie stuff of yamauchi it's it's cool um but nothing's official this might be you know all premature i mean it's very very likely the track record of the reporter at bloomberg who uh, reported this is impeccable he i don't think he's ever been wrong about any of this stuff but it's not official yet so we have to sit tight um what is official however is an entirely different type of technology being leveraged by nintendo augmented reality so uh obviously we talked about face raiders earlier and the ar cards with the 3ds when it launched that's augmented reality and of course pokemon go is augmented reality has been more in the forefront these few years but this past week nintendo announced that they themselves are jumping into the modern ar game with a familiar face they're teaming up with niantic who previously you know pokemon company was the middleman for pokemon go but now nintendo directly is working with niantic and they're going to be releasing multiple augmented reality apps the first of which they confirmed as being pikmin which i swear if all this time that miyamoto was talking about pikmin 4 and he just didn't finish his sentence and it was like pikmin for mobile is what i'm talking about like i'd be so mad if there was never really a pikmin 4 but um yeah that's pretty much all they've said so far uh, the game's being worked on in a new Tokyo studio for Niantic, uh, so they're in close coordination with Nintendo quite literally, and it sounds like Miyamoto himself is, is involved, 
And uh, yeah, the director of Pokemon Go is going to be hanging up this new project. He's promising a very different experience. And that's kind of all we know. But it does beg the question, like, what is this thing going to be? And I guess who's it for? I mean, it's for any Nintendo fan or anyone who wants to try a new way to enhance their walking, it sounds like. I mean, all we all we have to work off of is Miyamoto had a quote in a press release that it's about making walking fun and letting, experience, and letting like us, the player, experience the world, quote, as if Pikmin are all around us. Um, the key art also shows a bunch of Pikmin falling behind someone. So that's all we really know. But like, I don't know. Like, do you guys have any ideas of what with Pikmin would motivate you to do augmented reality? Like, is there anything? I mean, Pokemon didn't because even though that also did support AR, I think I used it once. And I found the game to be much worse because of it, so I always turn it. I just play with the AR off. To I be fair, almost everybody does. You could argue that even the location stuff is an augmentation of reality, which Pokemon oh, no, is yeah, heavily yeah. on. Yeah, I think I'm talking oh, yeah. no, both in this no, case. Yeah, I, but I, I mean, I meant the actual like you know looking through the camera. Oh yeah, yeah like, sure, Oh, the Pokemon sure. actual there. Like that part, I feel like made the game worse. Unless you're like taking pictures. It was very choppy. Yeah, yeah. It's better but, in later years, but it was very choppy. But I mean, I enjoyed Pokemon Go. Like you know going to the gyms for a while and that kind of stuff but i mean i mean when i fell off of it i fell off of it hard i mean i did get my chats on and i guess maybe that was like the i guess i don't need to play this game anymore but um <laughs> i can't think of what pikmin could do that could what would make i mean i don't think walking i didn't think walking was never not fun at this point right but yeah i don't know um I, give I, me pikmin 4 and make it better than <laughs> pikmin 3 yeah, I, I think, uh, maybe, may, what if, Angel, the game, the, the Arbitrary Reality is just, it's like a carrot at the end of the stick. So it's just a box <laughs> with Pikmin 4 <laughs> in Arbitrary Reality. You just keep walking towards it and it never gets closer. I bet you that's what it uh, is. <laughs> that would be, I mean, yeah, in that case, yeah, I would really ask what are you doing at that point. <laughs> I think, um, in my mind, at least, I can, I can see him going two routes with this, and I don't know... It's weird because they kept calling it not a game. So, like, they're, the whole, like, making walking fun concept, I mean, that's what Nintendo build walking training or whatever it was called on the DS as, where, you know, they gave you a little pedometer, you had a That's what the company was built on. Yeah. Making walking fun? Well, making, like, non-things oh, yeah, that are yeah. typically seen as not fun fun. Exactly, yes. Um, And walking mm-hmm. is just one they've kind of continued to dip their toe in. Because, like, I remember the, what I was saying with walking trains, they gave you that pedometer, you had your me. And then all you, literally all you did was walk, but the more you walked, the more your me would do when you resynced it back to the DS. Like he'd like walk to Paris or he'd do this or you'd unlock that. So on some level, it could just be that where you rack up more Pikmin as you walk and more rewards. But that doesn't – like that matches what Miyamoto's saying, but it doesn't seem like it has enough engagement. So I – the other I, the only other thing I can think of is it has to be kind of like Pokemon Go in which you like find Pikmin out in the world, you know, maybe him behind things or under things. You pluck them to add them to your collection. And as you walk and explore the world, like maybe some in-game objects are in AR, like maybe some of the treasure. Um, like in normal Pikmin, like you find things in the world and you take them back to your home base or your rocket ship. Although maybe here like you scan a real-life object because there is technology out there that can identify real-life objects with like a Google search. So you scan it as a funny Olimar description of what it is and then you like collect it to put back in your like stash or whatever. It's about finding yeah, things in the real fun. world. But maybe also like you're collecting the Pikmin and like the bigger your Pikmin army, you can go take on classic Pikmin enemies in certain pre-located, predetermined locations, kind of like gyms in Pokemon Go. Like there's enough there, but it sounds just so much like Pokemon Go. <laughs> so it's like, I, I don't know, unless they're coming up with something totally different. Um, but I, 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 
we'll see, I guess. I think the thing to note, really, is this is one of many. So, like, on the one hand, Pikmin being the first one makes sense. Um, it is about finding things in the world, and it is the franchise's 20th anniversary. But, like, how many different ways can you do AR unless you get real creative? Because, like, the, the other franchise that seems like a shoe in is Nintendogs, um, to me. And that one also, like, sure, you can manage your pet on at home. You can, you know, play with it and everything like a normal phone game. And then when you go on walks, you just walk it out the door. And then it can mirror the real game. You know, you find presents in AR. You meet other players' dogs in AR. You map out your walk using the GPS. Like, that could all be there. But, like, beyond that, like, it's all the same thing. You're walking and finding things. Like, I don't know how you keep doing that. Like, they, I don't know where, like, the creativity. I guess we'll find out. But it's... It's just so, yeah, like it's, it's, I think the key thing, at least in my mind, is with Nintendo, whatever Nintendo ends up doing, like, AR as a genre is a big bite to take. Like, I wouldn't put AR becoming a full genre for Nintendo on A Store, like 2021 bingo card, but here we are. And, like, the thing is, like, these, not a free AR game works. Like, uh, like, Ingress works. That's the OG of AR, and as an audience, Pokemon Go obviously works. But, like, from everything I've seen, the Harry Potter AR game has underperformed. Microsoft tried to hop in with Minecraft Earth. Oh man, I didn't realize that game came out already. Right? It's been out I mean, for like, it's been out for a year and a half. <laughs> and then wow. like Microsoft did Minecraft Earth, but they're already shutting it down. It, it like it's a tough market because it's not, I think, so much like, oh my god, augmented reality. I mean, Pokemon That's so just cool. lends itself so well to exactly. it. Exactly. No yeah. one's doing AR for the sake of AR, they're doing it because it marries well with the IP and it makes sense. Which is why Pikmin may work, why Nintendogs could work, but like I don't know what there would be beyond like i i mean i'm not a game designer it's not my job to figure it out luckily because i would totally fail but i'm very curious what nintendo cooks up because on the surface it seems like kind of a a wall you run into you know or too much same same stuff and if nintendo's doing it for multiple games so um yeah i mean is there any franchise you think angel um that you'd at least be like oh yeah this is this is what i need in ar <laughs> i mean besides pokemon there's not much else I could think of, right? Like, it's I don't just... even. I mean, I guess Pikmin is like the next one that kind of makes sense because you know it's supposed to be our planet, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's surprisingly pretty tough to think of another franchise, right? That like, like Nintendo. I would like, say work. Like I say, Nintendo kind of makes sense because it's already like literally half the game is about going out and walking around, so you just do it in real life. But like, no, yeah. I can't think of anything else. It's weird. Maybe they just shouldn't bother. <laughs> well, they shouldn't do that, but I'll be very curious to see where it goes, I guess. Um, it's, it's definitely an unexpected partnership, I'd say, you know, that Nintendo and I are doing additional AR games. Um, yeah. Yeah. Speaking of unexpected partnerships, though. Um, unprecedented. Unprecedented, even. Yeah. Let, let's talk about one that's sort of ten, uh, tangential to Nintendo. Evo was bought by Sony, sort of. Sony and an eSport company called rts like an esport venture group but either way um not also not to be confused with the genre of rts which is an esport in and of itself but it's not the esport venture capitalist firm that bought evo but either way evo is now a sony owned sony oriented theoretically event angel you are the resident competitive fighting game fan what's your take on this i honestly have no thoughts on this because we've yet to see what has come of it um I don't know. Uh, it could mean that people, that company will be less likely to want to participate in Evo. Hopefully that's not the case. But I think I have no idea. Um, I, I hate to say not, it. 
It could literally mean nothing, or it could literally mean that like we will just not have anything, like you know, no Smash Brothers in Evo. Yeah, that's no, my feeling. Like no Microsoft games at Evo, even though like you know they made sure to put out like a little memo thing, like oh yeah, we're still gonna host games from other consoles here. Don't you worry, but are they gonna want to host their games yeah. on that tournament? I think Microsoft like, will play I mean, ball, but it's Nintendo. I don't like Microsoft. Ball. I mean, I heard they own. Um, GG game, GG. Yeah, I forgot what it's called, but it's a mother, like kind of fighting game adjacent thing. You know, like Nintendo, they might cooperate in the first year, but maybe pretty soon they might just create their own thing, or maybe they just won't because as they've shown, they don't really care about the esports scene if it's not Splatoon. So, yeah, it's, it's yeah, or if it's not uh three stock all items on. <laughs> yeah, that too. That too. But yeah, it's. I so, mean, Kevin, do you have any thoughts? Yeah. Like, because Angel, you know, it sounds like it's, like it's just so early as hell. But did you have a gut, it, visceral yeah, reaction kind of, kind, when yeah. Evo was bought by Sony specifically? It made me feel happy about Street Fighter. Like, if anything, I was just more interested in what Nintendo was going to do as we yeah. were talking yeah. about. Yeah. What everyone else is going to do is more interesting than the fact that Sony I bought mean, it. The, the fact that Sony bought it also, honestly makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I also just wanted to see, like, I guess if anything, this kind of. Tells me like oh like if anything that the Sony is gonna like close their grip harder on the Street Fighter franchise because you know it was exclusive for the last generation like Street Fighter Five was only on PS Five and Street Fighter whether it's doing well or not sales wise it's always a premiere it's always the headliner game of Evo every single year like no matter who you are like it's always like yeah the the finisher the closer it makes I don't know it's always crazy and I feel like. They're definitely not going to be giving up that franchise anytime soon. Now that they have, now that they, I guess, are working even closer on Evo. So right, yeah. And I'm, I'm just hoping that means they're going to dump more money into um, Street Fighter Six, that they end up taking it further than Street Fighter Five because Street Fighter Five was kind of like, I mean, like two steps forwards, four steps back. They oversimplified some things that I know made a lot of the fighting community really angry. They Apparently, we're kind of crunching on the budget, so they pretty much use the same model that they did for Street Fighter Four, just mm. up-res them way more, which looked kind of ugly in a lot of cases, kind of like what Marvel Infinite did. Like, and the newer characters look better, but yeah, I I feel like this is just a good sign for that franchise, right? Specifically, I think kind of funny, um, but yeah. Like for Sony, it makes a lot of sense because to your point, they could kind of lock in some fighting franchises being like, oh, best on PlayStation, which is obviously. I mean, remember we're going to get a PlayStation Battle Royale 2 now? I mean, that'd be pretty cool. Yeah, possibly. But also, um, yeah, even. That was, yeah, them buying Sony was a weird roundabout way for them to finally get <laughs> All Star Battle Royale. I mean, Royale, they could have just so, announced you know? it like a normal studio, but no, nah, they got to buy Evo to do it. But I, I do think, like, given that Sony backed away from E3, and given that Sony used to have their own PlayStation Festival every December, like, I'm looking at Evo and going like, huh, in Vegas, every August, going right into the fall holiday and holiday lineups, they now have a tent pole where they can go run the show how they want entirely and have eyeballs on it already and do a tournament plus some other stuff next door. And they, I would not be surprised if they moved PlayStation Experience or Festival or whatever it's called from December to August and do it right next to Evo in the same venue. Like, it just seems like it's a perfect that... way for them to just expand – an event into I'm, being their own personal event. I don't know about that because then you have that situation where does Microsoft really want to put Killer Instinct? But to be honest, the, I don't think Sony cares. Like, I think Sony's looking well, at yeah, like... Well, yeah, but then you lose you lose that and does Sony really want... Uh, 
The it, it thing is also like Evo. I know it's like mainly thing as a fighting game tournament, but it's also like literally a mini E3. Yeah. And in the last few years, it's been definitely more fighting game centric. But some people were bringing up the fact that Evo usually has like a lot of side events that are not fighting games. Like they have mm. like Mario Kart tournaments. They have you know other racing games. They have like oh yeah, music competitive Catherine. And um... yeah, like it, it literally like they might le- they might leverage more that side of Evo and just like make it into this. That's one like yeah, you know, just like a they literally have like another yeah yeah because because Kevin to your so, like point you said, just more eyes on them. Just to your point about, like, they might lose Microsoft. All-encompassing competition, not just fighting games, I guess. Right, right. And to, to your point about not losing Microsoft, um, so PlayStation Experience, or Festival, or whatever it's called, was always paired with the Game Awards before. They were in the same city, sort of, like L.A. and Anaheim, but they were back-to-back, same days, basically. So it could be Sony being like, well, let's just control the whole experience. We'll still let them do their thing in the fighting world, but, like, right next door, we have our big showcase, and we get to decide how it's run so it doesn't become a circus like E3 rumored to be is rumored to become or anything like that um but the other thing we we're going to talk about yeah nintendo the response what are they going to do so nintendo put out a statement saying nintendo has enjoyed engaging with fans at past evo tournaments and wish the and wish the show's organizers the best with their new venture we will continue to assess evo and other opportunities as we plan for future online and offline smash bros tournament activity that's a piece homie to me Look. yep 100 percent and here is um, why I really believe it is. Nintendo has a history of the second a competitor gets involved, they just go, nope. Uh, the most notable one is uh, the Nokia Theater at LA Live was home to Nintendo E3 conferences and events for years, years and years. Going into the Two. World Championships in 2015, a month before the theater was renamed to the Microsoft Theater, Nintendo never went back. And it's not like Microsoft took it out from under them. There's a two-year gap between Nintendo using the venue and Microsoft starting to use the venue after the name change. So Nintendo pieced out and was like, uh-uh, we're not touching anything that says Microsoft on it. And that was that. And Microsoft they do and it they, now, though. What? I mean, like, pretend they had the relationship they have now and they were still Nintendo Direct's word thing. Because, I mean, it seems like, you know, Microsoft and Nintendo are more buddy-buddy nowadays. Do you think that's what would happen? I mean, I don't know if necessarily that specific instance, but Nintendo is very finicky about, like, they don't want to muddy their message, I guess. Or they don't want their their games to be, you know, misrepresented or something to be paired with something else. I mean, the, the prime example is going back a couple months now. We never talked about it on the show, but there's a story of why, you guys remember the rumor that Netflix was going to have a Zelda show? And it was like in early development. Um, it's pretty big. Like Wall Street Journal reported, like it seemed like, oh wow, this was before they got the Witcher show. It looks like they're trying to do like a family friendly Witcher with Zelda. Um, and it was basically leaked to the press that this thing's happening, and then suddenly it disappeared. And it turned out what happened was Netflix, to get Nintendo to finally sign the contract, leaked it out to demonstrate interest, and it backfired so hard because Nintendo's like, no, hold on, we we do things on our terms. So like we're going to use our properties that we want. We're going to do things where we want, when we want. So they pulled out of the deal entirely, canceled the whole project, and then recoiled so hard that there was simultaneously a fantastic Mr. Fox-styled Star Fox show being developed at College Humor. And they put the guys that you know at the time were working at Nintendo on Dinosaur Office on the 3DS. Remember 3DS had TV shows? That was a thing. Um, yeah, they pulled so hard out of the Netflix deal, they also canceled the Star Fox deal. And... It, on some level, I kind of get it. Like they're very protective of their IP. Um, even recently, there's an interview with uh, Nikkei. Protective. They teamed up with Illumination. 
protective. <laughs> but but Miyamoto sing- is involved in everything. Protective is a uh, is very very uh, light compared to what they actually do with their IP. Yeah, that okay. Well, let me rephrase that. They're very conscious of wanting to have the reins of the projects. Like your point about illumination, yeah, but Miyamoto's there in the meetings, or like Super Nintendo World. You know, Miyamoto, the Universal saying that no partner has been so deeply involved in the process as Nintendo was. And there's this interview in uh, Nikkei newspaper in Japan with Furukawa, Nintendo's president, who uh, he was talking about like it's important for them to like properly utilize their ips how they see it like they want to respect their legacy and do it only on their own terms because he pointed out that you can do short-term sales growth and whatever you know happens happens you'd be willing to know you'll get some money now but they've been doing this for this brand building for 30 years and they know exactly what moves to make that they think won't or will hurt and it seems like based on them playing on netflix based on them backing away from anything with a competitor's name it seems like their number one priority is they control every aspect of the message so would they go back to microsoft theater now maybe because they're kind of buddy buddy with with microsoft but would they let sony running an evo event and making announcements at the evo event and having maybe a next door playstation experience event would they let them have that much control over like smash bros being overshadowed i kind of doubt it like I think honestly the only reason they even did the Game Awards at the rate they do where they do kind of step up and share the stage is because Reggie and Jeff Keighley are really good friends. Reggie uh, signed on to the idea very early and convinced the rest of Nintendo to do it and now they're doing it out of tradition more than anything else. Because um, I'm like – apparently Reggie was one of the very first people Jeff Keighley talked to about it. So I think um, Mothership Nintendo and CL in Japan, I think they're very cautious and I would be shocked based on that message and their history that they're going to be back at EVO. That's just my two cents. Um, I mean, it sounds like, Kevin, you just off the message alone, you kind of got the same hint that they're not coming back. Yeah, because like Angel said, they're not interested in the fighting game scene. And a better way to just be like, all right, no, we're not doing this again. Yeah. To be like, Oh uh, yeah, no. Sony, no. And they do they do their own like level of fighting game stuff, but it's very casual oriented. So yeah, this is kind of a reset for them if they want it. Which they will probably take. Um Oh, and take they will. And take they will. Uh but yeah, I think was there anything else you guys want to say about Evo or any topics before we jump to our contest winner? Uh not really, except when we do eventually get these shows will probably be like in our late 40s and i don't know it'll be interesting to see what comes of them but i'm sure you know there's definitely some kind of like pilot or treatment or something available somewhere that i'm sure we'll oh, get for, for star fox and zelda yeah and definitely looking forward to checking those so out. just kind of reminded of um imagi the studio that made um the 2007 ninja turtle movie mm-hmm. wow it is 2007 jesus no yeah, it is. Oh my god, the CG Ninja Turtle movie. Um, they they also did Astro Boy. They pitched a Zelda CG film to Nintendo and it got rejected. But right. their whole like, but the whole short they did like is up on the internet and it's interesting. Um, the character designs might have been why Nintendo rejected it. Like, I mean, Imagine just has a very distinct style. Mm-hmm. Like all the characters are anorexic to say the least and have like big heads. I don't know. It's weird. Proportions are just weird, but. You know, animation quality is still great. But, yeah, I'm just curious to see these pop up eventually. 
I uh, I think mm-hmm. Fantastic Mr. Fox style Star Fox will come first. In fact, College Humor did a spoof of Star Fox in the end that looked kind of Fantastic Mr. Foxy, so it may already be out there in a way. They might have retrofitted it, but yeah, I'm curious about Zelda because from my understanding, from what I, um, the story was saying, is it was so early in development that like they didn't hire anyone yet to do anything, but I'm curious like who – when they pitched Nintendo, what did they show them? There had to have been something. And what is that something? And what does it look like? And what sort of, you know, names were they throwing around as potential links and Zeldas and that sort of thing? So yeah, I'll be interested to see, like, like you said, like 10 years from now what that was. Because it was close. It was very close to being reality. So it's not going to be something where like, oh, of course Nintendo said no. Like, they said no not due to the show, but due to the circumstance around it. So it'll be, it'll be interesting. Um, yeah. But yeah, I guess in that case, unless Kevin, you had anything, I think the time has come to announce our winner. Um, let me take that as a no. So last episode, uh, for 250 episodes, we announced a $25 eShop credit giveaway. Asked everyone to leave a comment in the blog post for that episode telling us their favorite competitive game, Nintendo or not. We got quite a variety. Um, perhaps unsurprisingly, Smash Bros, dominant answer. Splatoon, though, got a couple shoutouts. Uh, some other fighters like Mortal Kombat did, uh, Eleven did, and Tekken did. Uh, sports games came up a couple times, both serious Sims and like arcadey ones like NFL Blitz and NHL Hits which are great games, so good choice to that person. There was also a Rocket League shout-out, an Apex Legends shout-out. Um, I feel like we should real quick round Robin. Do you have a favorite competitive game? Like it's only, We asked them. We should probably have an answer. I could go first. If you, uh, I would normally say yeah, Smash. Yeah, you definitely go first. I would normally say Smash, but in this past year of doing Splatoon every Wednesday, I've really come to appreciate this Splatoon as a competitive game. Do am I competitive in it? No, wow. but I appreciate it, and I understand the mechanics of it a lot better in the meta and all that. So I, I've really come around because I used to watch the Splatoon tournaments at like the Nintendo events we go to. And be like, I mean, I guess, but now I really have come around. <laughs> so, so the past year I've really warmed up to it. I appreciate you appreciating that game. I appreciate, appreciate your appreciation to my appreciation. Yes. Yes. Hmm. So favorite competitive game? You only had two weeks to <sighs> think about it. <laughs> I know, like, it, it, and it's still tough because you know, like. Without questioning, like, it would obviously have to be Smash Brothers. Like, I just love how it pretty much created, like, its own genre of fighting game Mm -hmm. that spawned off, like, a bunch of others. Just, like, you know, Rivals of Ether, Brawlhalla, Smashdown, or whatever. Like, it pretty much opened up people's eyes to, like, oh, fighting games don't have to be on... You know, either like arena style or like brawlers. Like it could be pretty much play like a platformer, just like a hyper platformer. And, you know, Ultimate just has so much nuance to it. And I don't know, it's, I mean, as we know now, like it's pretty much blown up into like this own thing. Like it's, it's, uh, it's otherworldly what Ultimate is. Like it definitely, it is nothing short of its namesake. But, right. um, I I really can't pick anything else. Like Splatoon is awesome. I love. I think. I, cooperative competitive is, I I definitely can play that for longer stretches of time, as long as my teammates don't get tired of it. Um, back to back because you know I just love playing anything co-op, but, Smash Brothers like you know it's the it's the dream game. Like where else can I play as Bowser, Rob or C like Banjo and King K. Rule and still have it be competent competitive like very strategic mind gamey like it's everything like it's borderline perfect uh, the only thing that would make it that is keeping it from being perfect is my own personal gripes on character presenta- representation right but but at this point you know it's like not my vision i'm just happy about this in it 
I wish he had Kenny James' voice and more was pulled out from his games than what is pulled out from him. But hey, still a cool game. I mean, I don't know why he has like a flying grab SummerSlam, but <laughs> it's a great it's a great move. Like, I'm not gonna complain about the utility of the move, but like, where the heck did that come from? Right, right. Or his downtown. Like, I to this day, like, no one knows what that is supposed to be. He like jumps on one leg and acts like he's about to fall over. Like, I don't know what that's referencing or what part of like what the heck. It's uh Dance Dance Revolution Mario mix. It's a dance move. Barely. It barely looks like a definite. I don't know. It, it's just dumb. Like they could have given him so many. They could have just had him cross his arm. No, I'm not. <laughs> I said it flat. Okay, enough, I was like. about to say. <laughs> I mean, given the vast like canon and not canon and semi canon of Mario, like would it surprise you if Sakurai's like, yeah, do his DDR move? Like, it's possible. I mean, if I mean if they're gonna do a DDR move, like just do the stock image for DDR Bowser that's always passed around where he's like, you know, doing a, a handstand with his legs kicking up. That's not deep like, that enough. That's cool. not deep enough for Sakurai. He needs the frame in between two different dance moves. That's the one. For the him. thing is, like, the only part that always like irks me a little is when like some characters get like crazy like nice nods to you know their previous games or anything in general, mm. and then you have stuff like the Pokemon, except for Incineroar, where like they don't even have like their shiny colors. Like they literally have a a color palette that's already created that is recognizable and people like, and yet they just don't use it for some reason. Like, I don't know why they can't make a black Charizard with red wings. It would look awesome. And it's a thing, but like, no, nah, let's just give them generic colors or like Lucario. Like he's just slightly different shades of blue. Yeah. But, it, is, it is weird. It's, yeah. It's, it, it's weird. all over the place. It's weird. It's weird. What about you, Kevin? Uh, Nintendo good. or not favorite competitive game. If you had to pick one. Uh, nothing brings out the trash talk quite like <laughs> a round of Mario Kart with you boys, especially that goddamn blue shell. You know, to be honest, Mario Kart was very close to the top of my list, and I thought, nah, it's too much of a party game. But you're right, it can get so competitive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Mario Kart 8 Deluxe, I think, is the perfect kart racer. Yeah. Honestly, so on that level, that. if you're with the right group of people, Mario Party is also a great competitive game. In terms of the trash talk and, like, ridiculousness and just hounding of each other. Like, competitive trash-talking game. Not so much actually competitive. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. But yeah. as far as actually competing and having some skill Oh, no, involved, no, 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 no. Which is uh, why... Mario Kart, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Which is why I would never in a million years pick Mario Party as an actual competitive game. But anyway, um, cool. So those are our three. Uh, but now to announce the winner. He... Okay, so our winner actually had an interesting pick. Uh, Poyo Poyo. He explained it, too, in his comment. Boy, boy, fun. Yeah, it is. But he was saying it's a very good competitive game because there's a meta around all the different characters you play as, which actually kind of makes sense. And that winner who said that is uh, – I'm sorry. I'm going to totally butcher your name. Uh, it's Luis Adecarmo, I think. But uh, Luis, congrats. You won a $25 eShop gift card. Uh, Poyo Poyo is a quite inspired choice. Um, keep an eye out for a message from us in the coming days with your code. Huge thank you to everyone who entered. And again, like I said last episode – Thank you as well for even making it possible for us to get to 250 episodes and beyond. We do plan to keep trucking along. So to make sure you don't miss future episodes or potential giveaways. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Breaking news, guys. Uh, this isn't the last episode. So sorry. Oh. I just committed you to more. Um, but, yeah, if you if you want to make sure you don't miss any future giveaways like this one, uh, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Rantel. Be sure to subscribe to us on all the podcast apps. 
Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, Stitcher, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora. We're on YouTube at RamNintendo.com. Uh, and even before our next episode, we're back in a week with the next Quarantine Chronicles. Um, and then our next episode will arrive on April 11th full of whatever news and impressions and Nintendo-y things we're doing. Um, so yeah, that, that's pretty much it. You can find us individually on Twitter. I'm JSR7. Angel is Wero, W-E-I-R-O underscore O. Kevin is KVN Gomi. And Kevin, final word? Put Lucille Bluth in Smash. Smash.